Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. In black, remember that just in case we ever face to face and make contact. The title held by me, MIB, means what you think you saw, you did not see. So don't blink, be what was dead is now gone. Black suit with the black ray bands on, walk a shadow, move the silence, guard against extraterrestrial violence. But yo, we ain't on no government list, we straight don't exist, no names and no fingerprints. Saw something strange, watch your back, cause you never quite know where the MIBs is at. Uh, and. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what Patty Jenkins does for George Orwell's SEO. I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... James Hunt. And Caroline Cedar. Caroline's back! Yay! (laughs) Caroline, when did we last have you on? I don't know. It was a while ago because I've since moved apartments and I've been in this apartment for a while now, so... Was it Iron Fist? The Iron Fist minisodes? Probably, and I probably blocked it out because you got (laughs) to block out Iron Fist, the memory of it. (laughs) Yeah, Iron Fist, the TV show so bad it killed our bonus episodes on the Netflix (laughs) TV shows. (laughs) And maybe killed the Netflix TV shows too. Yes. (laughs) It's like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen sending Sean Connery into retirement, except it sent me me into bonus episode retirement. (laughs) I had such plans. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like unite this amazing team for for the Defenders uh, bonus episode. And I watched the Defenders and went, I, I, I can't. I, I yeah. I just can't. <laughs> just can't spend any more time on it. <laughs> um, but before that, you did our. So obviously, you, you first appeared on the show. Well, you first appeared on the show when we were talking about an article you wrote on our Agent Carter episode. Yeah. Um, and then you did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and mm-hmm. you've done another movie since then, haven't you? Dread. Dread, of course, yeah. And I got, um, uh, I think we did a couple Jessica Jones episodes, maybe. Who even yes. knows at this point? I Honestly, I listen so much, I just feel like I'm always a part of the show. I'm talking back <laughs> to you in my mind. <laughs> um, and today, you're here to talk about, well, so you can tell the listeners, you you kind of gave us some options of things you'd like to speak about, and we, we landed on... Men in Black, the 1997 classic, which I actually, until this, did not know was based on a comic book. So I'm learning <laughs> so much already. I feel like I always forget because I, I 
it's one of those songs we've got we've got a spreadsheet that we occasionally refer back to if we're like trying to think what would fit in gaps in the schedule and i always forget whether men in black is one that we put on there accidentally because it got a comic (laughs) after it after the movie because there's a lot of stuff like that that got comics afterwards Mm -hmm. uh but no men in black is not one of those it's full-on based on a comic a marvel comic right james Wow, we'll get into that. Ish. <laughs> Marvel ended up with it, but it didn't start with them. <laughs> um, so yeah, Men in Black today and Caroline, we've got at least we've got at least two movies in the bank. I think that we're like we'll save those for when Caroline comes back on. Yes, there's one that we very badly wanted to do right now, but we had to hold back for 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 reasons. So we'll yeah. Well, and, uh, I'll be on uh, as, as often as you like, because again, <laughs> it's easier to fight back with you guys in person than when I'm taking a walk <laughs> and arguing with you in my head. So, <laughs> Hey, we've had enough arguments on this podcast recently. <laughs> Are we going to talk about Watchmen again? No, <laughs> it, hasn't, it hasn't made the news, fortunately. We'll get, I mean, we'll get to it that. did release a bunch of set pictures. Yeah, but I've I've decided, given the amount of DC stuff we need to talk about, Watchmen hasn't quite made the cut. Maybe it'll be on the next mini so James. <laughs> I thought we'd keep this light and breezy. Um, <laughs> and then we should say, Caroline, at some point in the future, we are going to get you on for an X-Men movie because yes, that's, my that's your franchise. It is. I was actually just listening to another podcast about X2 and I was remembering how it's even better than I was thinking it was. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, right. Okay, so that's in the future. But yeah, this week we're going to be discussing uh, the latest comic book movie and TV news before diving into our spoiler-filled discussion of... Oh, didn't write it down. Barry Sonnenfeld's 1997 movie, Men in Black. Yes. But before any of that, I'm going to ask James to explain to me something, because I'm a comic book movie expert now, but I need James to tell me something I don't know about them. Uh, James... Given that Men in Black is a Marvel comic that I didn't know was a Marvel comic, can you tell me about another Marvel comic that I didn't know was a Marvel comic? <laughs> Ish. Uh, have we ever told you about Street Poet Ray? No, tell me about Street Poet Ray. I'm already intrigued. Street Poet Ray was... Caroline, I'm, ass- I'm assuming you know all about Street Poet Ray. Oh, of course. Yeah, I, I actually wrote the biography of that it's, it's comic like book a... character. <laughs> you edited the Wikipedia page. Yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of uh, a sort of indie comic that Marvel published. I have no idea how they ended up publishing it. Um, but it was about this like guy who was a poet, obviously, and they were all sort of like one-page little verses, um, in black and white with like uh, sort of purple Ronnie-esque stick figures. Right, okay. Um, and I'm going to Google it and see if I can bring up a Street Poet Ray um, page to do a live reading of. Because you won't believe how, like, considering it's a poetry comic, you won't believe how bad the actual poetry is. I'm just so, enjoying that we got a Purple Ronnie reference. I've forgot, <laughs> forgotten about the existence of Purple Ronnie. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, obviously I can't show you the... the illustrations that accompany this but if i tell you there are four in a grid um the poem is some live right some live wrong some folks weak some really strong world revolve yin and yang good and bad each choose their gang that's it 
Can you read the line about strong? <laughs> that was the one that got me. It was some folks weak, some really strong. <laughs> and accompanying that is a picture of a small person holding up a giant dumbbell and a giant person holding up small dumbbells. And, and so this was a comic that Marvel published. Is it yeah. meant to be funny? It published a lot of them. Uh, no, it's actually meant to be quite pious. There was a, a tie-in for um, Earth Day. Hmm. Like, it, this was serious stuff. Wow. When did it, When did this happen? Uh, oh, yeah, early 90s. About Men in Black uh, comic era. Wow. Okay, and so when do you reckon we should expect to see the movie and which, which Marvel characters might cross over? Well, the thing is, I'm pretty sure Street Poet Ray was creator-owned, so unfortunately for Marvel, the rights of that uh, staying with the creator who no but that's not how things work avoid. james um at, like uh, there's a watchman tv series coming i'm not sure if you've heard about it <laughs> yeah true <laughs> oh well that's a shame but thank you for teaching us all about street poet ray um i don't think we need to talk any more about it because there's a lot of news to talk about and um for the for the most part we're going to stick with dc this week and just after I was complaining on the last minisode um, about kind of all of this DC news kind of leaking out there and, and being like so insubstantial, but kind of just giving you a, like, you know, the leaks and rumours and movies that might be made, but you've you've got no idea. Um, here, here we come this week with news of three DC movies, solid news of two that are are already being or have been made. Um, and another one that seems pretty nailed on as well. Um, so we'll start with, uh, as it is now titled, Wonder Woman 1984. So the the Wonder Woman sequel has gone into production this week. It is set in 1984. And uh, Patty Jenkins took to Twitter to give us one image of uh, Gal Gadot's reflection in some TV screens with lots of 80s stuff going on in the background on those TV screens. Um to kind of let us know that Wonder Woman is in 1984 now. Um, but she's not the only one in 1984. Is she, Caroline? No, oh, there was... What a day I had. I was telling you guys off mic. What a day I had. There was a, there's a, also a picture of, of Chris Pine in some pretty fabulous 80s like workout wear that yeah. Patty Jenkins specifically said was Steve Trevor, although I'm sure we can discuss whether or not this yeah. is OG Steve Trevor, but <laughs> yeah, Steve yeah I, I, uh, I commented on that and got a, a very vocal response from multiple sides. So I know you've spoken what you just said, didn't you? Uh, that you often listen to the podcast and kind of have to uh, disagree with us <laughs> to yourself. <laughs> um, a, a film I think we do disagree on and one or did disagree on at the time um, is Wonder Woman and its treatment of Steve Trevor because we spoke on the podcast about saying that we all really liked Chris Pine in Wonder Woman. We really liked the performance. We really liked the character and the relationship with Diana and we we kind of cop to it is a more substantial relationship than you get in your typical superhero movies with a love interest. Uh, but our take was this is the model that superhero movies should follow, rather than rather than isn't it annoying that that the time where the man is the love interest he gets a much more substantial mm -hmm. role well i think we agree that it's ridiculous that it takes a, a man in the love interest role to get that substantial apart not that it never happens in superhero movies but it very rarely happens 
but you were really annoyed by it. You were more of the opinion, no, they should have made Steve Trevor as incidental as most superhero love interests are, and instead played up the female characters, which I think is a is a pretty fair take. Yeah, and you guys certainly weren't alone. I saw a lot of people saying that Steve is sort of the ideal model for, and I understand the argument. It's like, okay, a well-developed love interest character, that would seem like the ideal. But my sort of counter-argument is that I generally think superhero movies are stronger when it puts your hero, maybe this is just movies in general, but when you put your hero in a diversity of relationships, it allows you to see different sides of them. Mm -hmm. So I think of something like Captain America, you get the Steve Bucky friendship, you get what I think is like one of the most moving scenes with Steve and Dr. Erskine. Is that oh, his name? Yeah. Yeah. And then the, you get the, the drinking before the, yeah. Right. Before the, before the I don't have procedure. You have procedure. Yeah. And oh. you get, um, what a great obviously movie, Steve and Peggy, you get Steve and Tommy Lee Jones. You just get this diversity of relationships that I think is interesting because it's like, okay, what's Steve like in this set setting? What's Steve like in this setting? And as much as I love mm. Peggy Carter, if the vast majority of that movie was just Steve and Peggy and we, like, lost the Ernstine scene, I think that would hurt the film. And it felt like there were, for me at least, it felt like there were times in Wonder Woman where there were more interesting potential relationships to explore with Diana. But because Steve was such a focus, we... And I don't even think it's a matter of, you know, Steve as a character or Steve hurting Diana's arc. It's just a matter of we didn't get to see Diana in as many relationships as I would like. And one of my favorite moments in Wonder Woman is that scene where she's talking to Charlie, the um, sniper who's struggling with PTSD and essentially like can't really, you know, make shot, make a shot anymore. And he's thinking he won't go along. And she's like, oh, but Charlie, who will sing to us if you don't come along? Like she's valuing his skill set. And to me, that's Mm -hmm. such an interesting relationship. Like, oh, how cool would it be if we had sort of Diana's relationship with the whole group rather than it feeling like she's spending the vast majority of her time, even when she's refuting Steve or standing up to him or whatever, she's just like, that's the central relationship. Yeah. So I would just like to see more relationships and to its credit, we don't know anything about 1984. It, this could be, Steve could appear very briefly. It could be about Diana and multiple relationships. I feel like my frustrations are mostly left over from the first film. Yeah. And I was slightly projecting that onto the second film, especially considering that the first photo we get is a Steve Trevor photo. It just brought up some uh, <laughs> some things that were lurking in my mind. I mean, you made you made some really good points about uh, the fact that Steve Trevor got sort of brought to the foreground as an important relationship, whereas Antiope got, you know, completely dealt with in about five minutes and forgotten about for the rest of the film. Yeah, that, I always find that to be so weird. Like, the stuff on on the mascara in the beginning of the movie, I think is so strong. And then it's like, as soon as it leaves that it's forgotten. It's like literally, and sure. Subtextually you can be like, Oh, Hey, Diana's still wearing the crown. She's still wearing the outfit. Like you can read into a movie, you know, you can read in a lot of stuff about how that influences her and obviously her fighting style and stuff, but there's very little in the text. That's like, Oh, I'm thinking about my aunt that died who trained me, saving my life. She died saving my I life. Mean, you just think that that parallel, would be... Yeah, the direct ahead. parallel is Uncle Ben in Spider-Man, isn't yeah. it? And in... Uh, or Bruce the, and the his first... parents, or Superman, who is so motivated by Jarrell, who's a man that he never met. <laughs> like, that. you know, you get these... Or the 
the ultimate example that really, I think because it's also a, a Chris Pine example, in the third Star Trek, we get like a five-minute monologue of Captain Kirk talking about his father, who again was someone who died as he was being born and or as uh, Kirk was being born and he never met him. And it's like this movie takes a takes a whole scene to explore that relationship, whereas Wonder Woman and Taipei is is an even more important force in Diana's life in the sense that she trained her. She inspired her to sort of go against her mom's, like, you, you won't be a warrior philosophy. She is more important than, than Captain Kirk's father, who is just an image, or Luke Skywalker's father, who is another, you know, seemingly dead father who motivates the hero a lot. And it's like you'd think in a movie Antiope would be a regular reference point for Diana throughout her arc because that's mm. – such an important part of her life. Again, she died literally saving her. Also, Diana grew up on an island of immortals, so she has not really had a ton of experience with death in yeah, and of itself. That seems like it would be a huge, deal. yeah, a huge and moment that your first... She defines her relationship with her powers as well. She was the yeah. one who trained uh, and encouraged Diana, and you would you would think that that would, would have more of a shadow because it does tend to in superhero movies. Yeah, exactly. And I'm not even necessarily saying that, like, then we can't have Steve Trevor and it has to all be about Antipi, but it seems like it can be a balance. Like, Spider-Man, Peter Parker, cares deeply for Mary Jane and is motivated by her mm. and influenced by her, but that doesn't mean that then we can't mention Uncle Ben for the rest of the movies or, or the comics or whatever. That's like a dual, you know, dual factors, mm-hmm. as most people have. And it felt like Wonder Woman, it was like, at this point in the film, she has this relationship, and then for the rest of the film, she has the Steve Trevor relationship and there for me at least it didn't feel like there was a balance of that stuff especially when you look at the fact that after Antiope's death the next scene once that's been resolved is literally that scene where Chris Pine is naked and it's like a goofy romp setting up their sexual romantic chemistry and it's like what like can you imagine like Uncle Ben dies and the next scene is like whoops Peter saw Mary Jane in her bra like ooh kooky kooky things going on I mean Something I could I could with Andrew Garfield could yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, same same base level joke from us there <laughs> um, but that being said I really did like that scene <laughs> yeah and it's under, yeah and yeah it's not necessarily... And again, I don't even have anti-Steve Trevor feelings. I just think we could have used a little less of him and more elsewhere relationships. And, and you know, the hopeful take is that 1984 is going to find that balance and mm. it's going to use Steve well. I don't think it's, you know... Again, my frustrations are less looking forward and more looking back. Both to that and Justice League was another movie where it really centered on Steve in terms of how Diana processes the world. And it's like, okay, she literally knew this dude for three days, yeah. like it 70 just, years sort of ago. Me, it bothers me that in Justice League, like you could almost hear Joss Whedon's voice coming through Batman in those scenes where he was like, oh, you know, look, you had this relationship with this guy and like, it was really important to you. And now what have you done since? And then like the sequel to her movie comes out and it's like, well, actually he's in that. And yeah, <laughs> We've done a continuity insert that invalidates that entire speech. Well, uh, no, because, I mean, Justice League is a movie that does not exist, so that's not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> not until they release the Snyder Cut, hey, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, all that being said about... I mean, because, because no one expected Chris Pine in this movie. Uh, it's because it's so definitive at the end of Wonder Woman that he's dead. And I know that this is is a comic book movie universe and that 
things can happen and there are explanations that can that can hand wave either his death away or introduce I don't know an evil twin or a son who looks exactly like him or a, a, any of that kind of stuff but we do it just it's shocking that he's in it but it feels like now that they have had to kind of come out and say right we can't we obviously can't keep this secret we're going to have to just get out there and admit that it's happening that Chris Pine is a part of this movie and presumably I mean he's there for the first day of shooting so Unless he's just coming in and doing a, a brief stint <laughs> One and then day leaving, <laughs> it could. I mean, he could be just there for a week and filming a short little. It could be like you know, I don't know, Diane having visions or something like that. Um, but it seems to and making it the first image from the movie suggests that he is going to have a big part in it. I was going to uh, say it feels like quite Kenny marketing to just sort of throw that out there immediately and just be like, "We're not going to hide it. He's in the movie. The you know the mystery here is." how and why mm-hmm. yes so now that now the challenge that wonder woman 2 has is a similar challenge to what the avengers has with infinity war part 2 so we're all we're all expecting by the end of infinity war part 2 the snap to be undone and all of those characters to return and that to be that and that there will be some sacrifice and the 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 challenge that that movie faces is getting us to believe to, to getting us to believe their explanation for the people coming back but also getting us to buy the cost of them coming back uh, I would I would in fact cite uh, Game of Thrones is a good example of this the books haven't got to explain it yet but the TV show killed Jon Snow in a season finale and everyone speculated about how he would come back because it was pretty obvious he was coming back um, and when he came back, the means of which he came back made sense, but there was no real cost to it, and there was no emotional or there was no price in the in the in the universe of the show, and it felt like a cheat to me, and I'm sure to lots of other members of the audience. And Wonder Woman two now faces that, and I don't know about you guys, I can't immediately think of an explanation for Steve Trevor being in this movie that feels. That feels like I will buy it. I mean, uh, that, Patty Jenkins has obviously made a decision that whatever her decision is, is worth it. Or that maybe she has such a good explanation that she's like this, you know, people are just going to love this. But can you can you guys think of any of any way that this works in a, in in Wonder Woman 1984? Well, isn't the precedent from the TV show, uh, which I don't I don't have a ton of experience with, but isn't that that it starts sort of World War II, Steve Trevor dies, and then sh- she's in the 70s, and it's Steve Trevor's, like, son or grandson that, like, played by the same actor. Do you guys know what the, I'm talking about? something along those lines. Yeah, you're right. So I it, feel like there's a precedent there of the just, you know, conveniently identical son, grandson, what have you, that comes along, which does get into, like, strange territory if you want to be romancing your... I mean, I think this is the, like, you know... Peggy Carter. Uh, I'm reminded of the, uh, the Friends episode where Joey's the alien. And he's like, I'm going to look up your granddaughter when I get back to it. <laughs> or the Busted song. <laughs> year 3000, yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Um, looking at the picture, it obviously it's Chris Pine, but it looks like Steve Trevor. I don't know how to... 
Well, and, 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 and Patty Jenkins calls Steve him Trevor. Steve Trevor. And the thing, too, I think the obvious thing is like, oh, visions, or he's going to act as her consciousness or, or, or her conscience or, you know, what have you. But what's interesting to me is that he's in very explicitly 80s clothes. And you would yeah. think if this was some sort of just vision she's having, she would remember him as she last remembered him rather than having really a vision of someone she knew in World War One, but like putting him in contemporary clothes. <laughs> so that implies to me that this is a character that is existing in that world, whether through he, you know, he went through a time portal or this is his grandson. It seems like someone that'll be in 1984, but I guess it's all speculation at this point. I would Dude. think the way to make this work, it, the way to approach this in a way that it has the best chance of working is that rather than us watching the start of the movie and Steve Trevor turns up and the movie explains why Steve Trevor is there. Instead, Diana can't explain it the whole way through the movie. Steve can't explain it the whole way through the movie. And it is a third act reveal, you know, how and why he's there. Because I think if you pause for that exposition dump in the first act. Yeah. But I mean, this is, I guess this this is a universe where it's it's a comic book universe and there are... You know, we had a god posing as a British military leader in the first movie who turned out to be the villain. Um, this could be all sorts of magic by various... Who knows? Maybe Zeus has created him or something out of clay. Um, but like, How likely do we think it is that he his plane crashed in the Arctic and he was frozen? <laughs> that would be inc- Honestly, that would be incredible. And it- <laughs> or maybe it's something... You know, Doctor Who did this thing where where Jenna Coleman played like fractured versions of the same character who just sort of popped up in different time periods with eventually an explanation, but for a while sort of no explanation. So kind of like what you're saying, Joe, maybe it is like he's just there and is this the same person or does he even have the same memories? Like maybe it's not a this is literally my grandson and more like, ooh, this is some weird fractured version of him leading to they could just do something where Steve Trevor dies at the end of every single Wonder Woman yes. movie and it's always a new a new version. It's just the it's just the South Park joke, right? Yeah. 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 I I, the thing that I just keep coming back to is as much as I loved the two actors together in the first movie, the the one thing that was undeniable about Wonder Woman was Gal Gadot was a an instant icon as a superhero on screen. And while I liked that relationship, it didn't feel like a w- Wonder Woman two wouldn't work without Chris Pine. Sometimes yeah. you do you do look at films or you look at TV shows and you go, do you know what? If you lose that character or you lose that relationship, I just don't think I'm going to be invested in the same way. It, that thought had never crossed my mind with Wonder Woman two. It was like Diana's coming back. I'm I'm on board. Fine. You uh, Patty Jenkins directing, Gal Gadot starring. Yeah, okay. That's mm-hmm. it's it's probably going to be pretty good. Um, so yeah, I think they've they've created a huge hurdle to overcome for themselves, but maybe they can overcome it. And I, I certainly I, mean, I certainly trust is, this movie to do it more than I do any other DC movie. That is the risk, isn't it? Is that they try and recapture the magic and don't like there are the cinematic landscape is littered with superhero sequels that went. Oh, let's just do that and recapture the same magic, and then you end up with Iron Man Two. <laughs> so, which is better than its reputation, which, James, is, f- of which is fine, but it's no Iron Man Three. <laughs> I think is, I am most true. curious about. Um, I that is a, I, you will not get argument from me on that. Iron Man Three is great. <laughs> um, 
I think I am, what I am most curious about is not just the Justice League continuity, but Wonder Woman itself has that present day framing device where it's very clear that Diana is like mourning this person and mm-hmm. like trying to get an artifact. You know what I mean? Even that within that movie, it's not like, oh yeah, and then hmm. in a couple of decades, Steve came back and then we <laughs> hung out a lot. Like it really does feel like, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't not the feel continuity like after is that the most scene important in the Louvre thing. that she's been hopping in a taxi and going to see 60-year-old status. Right, right. <laughs> and she's like, oh, here, I found this letter or, whatever, or this photo or whatever it was. So, yeah, it's also, if it does end up being his grandson, it is very funny that so much of the Wonder Woman and Batman v Superman was like, how could there be a photo of an identical woman that was in the past? Yes. <laughs> and if it's literally now, it's also a world where all grandsons look exactly like their grandfathers. It's really like, there's a lot of questions there. Here's here's one explanation that I think we would all buy and be there for, right? So uh, Diana, she's, you know, she's been living for what, 60, 70 years in, in the Western world. Um, and then all of a sudden just falls through a portal. She's in a different universe in the mm, DC multiverse mm-hmm. and, and free from all the burden of all the other DC bullshit that's gone on around her. And they're rebuilding all the DC movies around this character and Henry Cavill and Zack Snyder and Ben Affleck and all of those people are never to be seen again. <laughs> you won't be yeah. happy until everything involves a multiverse, will you? Nope. Hey, James, you missed us discussing Enter the Spider-Verse. <laughs> oh, God, how can you not be on board for a multiverse after that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, well, that that was our Wonder Woman 1984 discussion. Um, I love the title, by the way. I, I like yeah, it's just, cool. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like you can just, just do sequels where you put any random year after it. I'd watch Wonder Woman 2763. That sounds great as well. <laughs> I um, remain excited about this movie. As, as much as my reservations about Steve from the first one, there is a lot from the first one that I do really like. And I don't want to come across as being too negative. And I think it's probably, it seems like on the first one, Patty Jenkins had to fight for what ended up becoming a lot of the best moments in the film. So ideally yeah. she has a lot more creative control over the second one and it will be even better than the first. Yeah, I am. I'm, it's it's a similar feeling that I have about Ant-Man and the Wasp. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, Peyton Reed's doing Peyton Reed's thing this time. And I feel like the same with Patty Jenkins. I mean, she she had to fight to get to Wonder Woman in the first place after all of the Thor The Dark World stuff. Um, so yeah, finally seeing her full unadulterated vision is uh, is an interesting prospect. Um, let's move over to another DC movie, though, that is um, is released this year, I think. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Aquaman, James Wan's Aquaman. Um, Aquaman. My man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it will never not be funny or terrible. <laughs> um, the, the the character who I think we all expected to be the runaway like success of Justice League and it ended up being a catchphrase spouting like <laughs> bore, I think. Um, Those but- two things are not mutually exclusive. um but yeah the aquaman movie is coming and entertainment weekly um this week debuted a bunch of new photos from the movie um and so we we got our our first like proper look at aquaman so there is a there's the the front covers of the magazine there's a couple there's one with um jason momoa and amber heard who's playing mira and um 
Nicole Kidman, who's playing Aquaman's mum, whose character I can't remember. Um, there is another... Sh- there are, there's then individual images for the movie. There is uh, Aquaman getting splashed whilst looking buff. Um, <laughs> Aquaman and Mira on land. And um, the the quote underneath that on the Entertainment Weekly site is, Arthur Curry and Mira embark on a quest to the surface world. Which uh, makes me wonder what the what, how much of the movie is going to be set underwater. There is a shot of uh, Yaya Abdul Mateen II, who is playing Black Manta in the movie, um, with him and his Black Manta helmet. There is a shot of Aquaman in full armor opposite Patrick Wilson, who is. Oh my god! I did his... not know Patrick Wilson was in this movie. Yes. I love Patrick Wilson. As the main villain, I think. Uh, yeah. What a dream. Aqu- I hope he sings. <laughs> <laughs> As his half-brother, King Orm, uh, who wants to declare war on the Again, every world. villain has to be related to the yes. hero. <laughs> um, and then there is a shot of James Wan directing with um, Amber Heard and Jason Momoa in like a sunken galleon. And the back of Willem Dafoe's head, Willem Dafoe is playing Aquaman's mentor, Volko. Uh, there's a shot. Hey, Nicole Kidman's character is Queen Atalana of her looking after a young Arthur Curry, which suggests that she's not going to be in this movie for very long. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and yeah, and then there's the covers. So, um, you guys, what are you what are you thinking about Aquaman? Seems like more of it. I, are we going to get first act underwater, second act quest of the surface world? Third act, quick, let's get back underwater for all of the final action scenes. I don't even think the third act. I think this movie is going to be The Little Mermaid, which is mostly on land <laughs> yeah, yeah. towards the end. Did Mira have red hair in her brief Justice League cameo? Because they straight up just made her Ariel It doesn't this, seem, and that was not it, my memory of her. It doesn't, I, I don't remember it being quite this red. The sh- certainly the shots, of, the, the shots of her in this are, yeah... It's like Ariel red and then the exact same tail color as Ariel, except she's wearing it as like a sexy, um, almost mystique level, like skin tight bodysuit slash bustier with what looks to be like a Star Trek insignia on her like stomach in a strange way. (laughs) Yeah. My main takeaway from this is this looks like the Little Mermaid and I'm cool with that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Nicole Kidman has a similarly... Uh, less busty but very mm-hmm. um, figure hugging costume and then there's Aquaman still just in his just with his arms out um, yeah I guess you could kindly say it's like modeled on scuba like sexy scuba diving yeah <laughs> outfits sure. or something it's the movie we've all been crying out for sexy yeah. scuba diving <laughs> James do you do you have any reason plot wise or any reason kind of comics wise why i should be excited for this because at the moment the one thing that i'm kind of looking at this and going it i could see it being like you know kind of shakespearean kind of stuff what ken branner tried to do with the first thor movie um and my hopes are high because of james wan but not particularly because of anything beyond that I mean, I'm going to be spectacularly unhelpful and say I've never read an Aquaman comic. <laughs> yeah, I can't must, even remember reading a re- comics with Aquaman in. There must be a reason. There must be a reason why you're not attracted to that character at all. Because he's Aquaman. Like, he talks to fish. <laughs> James Wan has explained how they're going to talk underwater. So do you remember all of the... <laughs> Just really bubbly. Like... <laughs> <laughs> do 
<laughs> do you, so do you remember the first shot of him in Batman v Superman where it literally looked like he was holding like you could see him holding his breath as he swam underwater on that on that computer file that Bruce Wayne was looking at. And then in Justice League, the scene where he speaks to Mira underwater, they kind of step inside an air bubble. And yeah. so James Wan got asked about that and said, so how, you know, how are you going to do that in the Aquaman movie? And he went, do you know what? I think everyone's been thinking a little bit too much about it. They're going to open their mouths and they're going to speak and you're going to hear it. And there's, there might be like a, a small sound effecty kind of, a sound wavy kind of effects that you see, but mostly it's just going to be, it's kind of, it's, you know, it's going to be like in the little mermaid. They're underwater, but they're just, talking. yeah, don't, don't worry. Yeah. It's fine. I think that's fine. Yeah. I think so too. <laughs> Makes you wonder why they got themselves in such a tizzy about it in the, in the other two movies where he featured. <laughs> I have a weird relationship to the DCEU where I think I tend to be more critical of things I like and when I, there's something mm. that I really don't like, I am, my instinct is more to look for the things, like appreciate the things I do like about it, which unfortunately means I end up being more critical of things I think are better. Like it's a weird <laughs> way that my brain works, but I kind of go in thinking like, oh, the DC films like base level mostly aren't that good. So what I remember are like the moments that I like, which kind of gives me like a nicer impression of them. I think that there's stuff in Suicide Squad that I genuinely think is good. And there's stuff in Man of Steel I think is good. And even Batman v Superman has some of my favorite, like, little scenes in it. So I feel like I I end up being more positive on the DCEU than I am even sometimes on the MCU, even though overall I think the MCU is so much better. (laughs) So I have I'm willing to go with you on Man of Steel and Batman v Superman as in they have good stuff in them. But what's what's the good stuff in Suicide Squad? I just need that scene I just need to know. where Harley Quinn gets like fall. She she's like goes with the Joker, and then he kind of like abandons her, and then she goes back to the crew, and she's sitting on a car, and she she's really sad. But then as soon as they come out, she like pretends to be happy and fun yeah, and Margot, flip Margot it, Robbie and it's like the most incredible acting any, moment. Yeah, any scene where Margot Robbie and Will Smith are interacting as well. Good yeah, scene. yeah, and I mean we'll get into this in the Men in Black chat, but like I am. <laughs> A hardcore Will Smith stand. So anything mm-hmm. he does in Suicide Squad, I'm into. I don't know. And I again, it's like I will totally acknowledge this is a very strange way my brain works, and I can't quite no, justify I, it. But I completely understand it. I, I, for me, it has a lot to do with expectations as well. Yeah. So if, a, if there's a movie like Suicide Squad, well, maybe Suicide, Suicide Squad's a bad example actually because I think the the buzz for that with the trailers was actually like, oh, could this be good? Um, <laughs> But yeah, if there's a mo- if there's a movie that I'm expecting absolutely nothing from, and it yeah. turns out to be okay or quite good, then I'll probably focus on the things that are good about it because they're the interesting things to talk about. If I go into it, and, and it's why every time I speak about Civil War, I speak about it as if it's a bad movie. It's not mm-hmm. a bad movie. It's just for me a disappointment in the context of the MCU, and it's not. It's nowhere near as good as I thought it was going to be. So I end up talking about the things that I don't like about it because everyone else is talking about the good things anyway. And I think there's a, there's, there's something to that as well, that if every, if everyone's saying the things that are good about a good movie and everyone's saying the things that are bad about a bad movie, then why not point out things that you yeah, think people aren't like talking about? Like a contrarian impulse. Yeah, I was going to say, I think we may all just be like contrarian movie critics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is the most likely scenario here. <laughs> I don't know. We did. We did spend how what, three hours talking about Infinity War, just as 
geeky fanboys. <laughs> True. True. <laughs> that was good, wasn't it? That was good. It was yeah. better than the three hours we spent talking about Doctor Horrible. <laughs> yeah, listeners, we cut about fifty minutes out of that episode, at bare minimum. And that's be- and that's before we added the songs in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so that was that was the Aquaman images, um, but we are still not done with DC um, because there's been big changes are in DC from kind of a an executive level in the last few weeks and it, it kind of stems from what's been happening since the release of Justice League that there's been a lot of change internally um but those changes have now finally had a clear impact on the creative side of things as well so Walter Hamada became the like the head of DC Entertainment in the movie side of things back in December, January. Um, And he took over what one report described this week as a shit show and has been trying to get stuff in in order ever since. Um, Last week, Diane Nelson, who was the president of DC Entertainment, stepped down. She was kind of the president across comics, TV. She kind of oversaw the the whole shebang. She stepped down and then... This week, Jeff Johns stepped down from his current DC role. Now, James, he was the chief creative officer at DC, and that kind of extended over comics and TV and movies, didn't it? Yeah, he was basically the equivalent of Joe Quesada at Marvel, which is that he's someone who has his finger in like all the pies. I guess Joe Quesada, if Joe Quesada also had movie involvement. I think Joe Quesada actually does have movie involvement to a point. Oh, is is he on the Marvel Parliament? (laughs) Yeah, he's he you know, he's higher up than just the comics editorial. He he's like the only editor in chief since Stan Lee to get sort of promoted out of the editor role because normally what happens is you sit in that chair until you fuck something up badly enough to be fired. Yeah. Uh, but he was good enough to get promoted upwards. But Jeff Johns so he he's kind of been steering the DC Comics line from a creative point of view with Diane Nelson in in that mm-hmm. role above him. Um, he's stepping down from that um, to instead focus on the creative side of things. So he's still going to be writing comics, but he has also launched a production company, a movie production company, and the first project that is up on the website, which I think is called Mad Ghost Productions. Mad uh, Ghost it is. <laughs> not sure what that is in reference to. <laughs> um, but the first movie that's on there is one that we've expected would be coming for a long time. That is Green Lantern Corps. And Green Lantern Corps has been expected to be released in 2020 for, for yeah for quite a while. We now know that Jeff Johns is writing and producing that movie and that the movie will feature the characters of Hal Jordan and Jon Stewart and it is going to be a buddy cop movie in space. It has enough time passed? That's the first question. Has enough time passed for audiences to give a Green Lantern movie a chance. By 2020, I think they will have... Nine years? A solid decade, almost. Yeah, but I mean, Deadpool is still making jokes at its expense. <laughs> Maybe that was the catharsis that we needed. Deadpool, yes. like, yeah. literally put it put it in the grave, and now we can all move on. So, Caroline, does, it, does that concept... I, I presume your movie probably the same as me, movie aside, not that familiar with Green Lantern. Yeah, and watching the movie was actually, the first time I watched it, I was so shocked because I didn't realize that Green Lantern was part of 
like a I just thought he was like Superman, like the one guy that that does the thing. And when in the movie he goes to space and they're like, it's a whole police force. I was like, whoa, I literally had no idea about any of this. And to me, that was really interesting and like some of the most interesting stuff. So the idea of a movie more centered on that than on like, you know, we get a lot of the the solo hero archetype. So the idea of focusing on the Green Lantern Corps and making it a buddy, like that actually sounds kind of appealing to me and like a good way to set it apart from, from an overcrowded marketplace. Yeah, and notably, James, I mean, we, we I'm sure Seb is disappointed he's not here to talk about this, but <laughs> Hal Jordan is, from every everyone that I've ever talked about Hal Jordan, is the most boring DC character. Like, there's nothing about him that's interesting. Ryan Reynolds effectively didn't play Hal Jordan. He just played a, a generic superhero. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you've got here is potentially Hal Jordan, who's your kind of, like straight down the line white bread superhero alongside everyone's favorite green lantern or most people's favorite green lantern who is um who's a who's a black green lantern who has a more i think contemporary following in terms of comics fans he's the one that everyone has cried has been crying out to see in fairness it's less comic fans and more animation fans but yeah yes i mean yeah i i kind of want to point out like the idea of a sort of, you know, intergalactic buddy movie teaming up a sort of straight-laced white guy and a, a more contemporary black guy hmm. sounds familiar. <laughs> I, can't, I can't think from where. <laughs> a training day, I think that's what you're asking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, you know, it's a formula that should should work because it has previously worked for men in black Mm. the casting that the rumors around these characters and i kind of buy into some of them more than others in terms of the casting that's been you know out there for a while army hammer has been consistently Mm. linked (laughs) with this role Um, yeah i'm really into that and in a different way i'm very into the rumor that tom cruise is interested in playing that character I kind of like the idea of the meta narrative of like, here's a guy who was, you know, who was this movie star a while ago and <laughs> is is now struggling to keep up with the, you know, the, the meta narrative of like, I don't know. There's, times, have moved, times have moved on. Yeah. There's your 90s hero. Here's your, here's your 2010s hero over here. I say that as like one of the most anticipated movies of the summer is Mission Impossible Fallout. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> and I and I am amongst the people anticipating that movie. Um so I like those I like those casting suggestions. Um the only casting suggestions I've seen for John Stewart were Tyrese Gibson, who has lobbied for that movie consistently <laughs> on social media. Uh but Tyrese Gibson is um I think fair to say erratic on social media. Um and the other rumor is Common, who was cast to play Green Lantern the first time around in in the Justice League. Uh, oh, what was that called? Justice League Mortal. Um, I would imagine that you'd probably be looking at someone younger for John Stewart, but who knows? Do you know who else is sort of like low key gunning for it? Is Sterling K. Brown from This Is Us and oh. and um, the People vs. Bla- OJ, who is secretly super ripped like if you sometimes he'll sort of post (laughs) videos of himself like working out or or just being shirtless and it's like whoa what's happening here and i think it's very into sort of like yeah he'll be like on a treadmill 
Yeah, and you're like, oh, hello. Yeah, it's insane. He's and I've seen, I think he has specifically said that he would like to play Jon Stewart before, and that I would be super into. Yeah, I can see that completely working. Mm. Aside from the fact that he's 42, like, wow. Yeah, well, and maybe guess... that is the case then, and then Army Hammer, who's like the slightly younger, you know what I mean? It could it be would like... Be an the... interesting, yeah. It would be an interesting dynamic shift to have uh, <laughs> Jon Stewart as the older one. I don't know. I don't know if it would because that is your lethal weapon dynamic. Yeah. Okay. Fair. That's that. That's your class. Uh, that's fair. That's why I'm so intrigued by like the idea of a Tom Cruise in that role. Um, I mean, Chris Pine was originally rumored for this as well. Chris, when when he was cast as Steve Trevor, people didn't believe that he'd been cast as Steve Trevor. <laughs> they were like, they're never casting Chris Pine for that throwaway role. And here we are, four <laughs> years later. <laughs> I do no. hope how Jordan is one day after retirement. <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah, um, James, you can probably speak to the Jeff Johns of all this. From what I know of Jeff Johns, I think he has, I, I think people are generally pretty pro what he's done in comics. He's been instrumental in turning DC yeah, around. He has, certainly. he has, he has some, he has some things. I know he's famous for kind of like maiming characters and chopping off body parts and that kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, certainly what Jeff Johns did with Green Lantern was yeah. massive, like massively revitalized the property. Like, I can honestly say I knew about Green Lantern prior to Jeff Johns taking over because, you know, I'd been reading comics for 20 years or whatever, but I was never interested in Green Lantern until I saw all the things that he was doing with the character. The closest parallel from what I can tell is what Jason Aaron has done with, or Jason Aaron has done with Thor over at Marvel, but not to the same degree. I mean, I I would say even more like Jeff Johns has been even more definitive than that in that yeah. I don't think yeah. any writer is ever going to take on, take on Green Lantern again without feeling the need to sort of reference those stories. Like it is really, it's such a, a late transformation of the character into something I mean, kind of relevant and interesting. We probably wouldn't have got the first Green Lantern movie, would we, at all, if Jeff Johns hadn't have been doing what he'd been doing in comics? No, exactly. So you would imagine that Jeff Johns is the guy... You know, if you're going to trust him with one movie, if you want to see what he can execute on the big screen, then Green Lantern Corps is the way to go. Yeah, I mean, I I remember listening to an interview with uh, Jeff Johns on Kevin Smith's podcast like years and years and years ago, where he talked about how he um, got a job in Richard Donner's office almost by accident. <laughs> and like that, it sort of feels like coming back around to movie production and, you know, taking on Green Lantern is the sort of natural combination of everything his career has been working towards. Yeah. I was excited by the prospect of finally uniting the seven. (laughs) (laughs) But then I realised if there's two of them, we're uniting the eight. So, sorry, (laughs) Ben Affleck, you're going to have to go. (laughs) We're going back to uniting the seven. There's been lots of... What I was going to say is... I I think this is overall a positive week for DC. It's the opposite of what I was talking about last week. They are, here's Wonder Woman 1984. It's in production. Here's some images. Like, whether we are generally pro or against the Chris Pine involvement, everyone's intrigued and no one's writing the movie off, however sceptical they might be. The Aquaman images, it, it... I think that's a movie that looks promising, has a good creative team, has a good cast. Jeff Johns writing a Green Lantern movie, that's a movie that immediately sounds like it is going to happen. Um, 
all of these things are positive. In the background, there are like other rumblings about Ben Affleck's being recast in the Batman movie, and this is happening and that's happening. But Someone's I think announced another Joker movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, by the time we finish recording this podcast, they probably will have done. But yeah, in in general, a good week for DC, I think. And yeah, and they're overdue one, frankly. Yes. So yeah, so that's all of the comic book movie and TV news for this week. Uh, we will take a short break now as we listen to one of the original trailers for Men in Black. And then we will be back with our spoiler-filled discussion of um, a movie that a lot of you probably never knew was a comic book movie. <laughs> we work for a highly funded yet unofficial government agency. We'll take it from here. Who the hell are you? INS Division 6. There is no Division 6. Our mission is to monitor extraterrestrial activity on Earth. You're only here because you're the best of the best, and we're looking for one of you. Hey! What's up? I want to get some coffee. You want some coffee? No, thank you. I'm fine. Hey, you guys get along all right? No, All right, I'm in. From now on, you will have no identifying marks of any kind. You are no longer part of the system. We are the men in black. You know what the difference is between you and me? I make this look good. Series 4, de-atomizer. That's what I'm talking about. Noisy cricket. I feel like I'm gonna break this damn thing. Oh, it gets better. Dad, we have a bug. Unlimited technology from the whole universe, and we cruise around in a Ford TOS. Fasten your seatbelt. See, now we got to work on your people skills. Columbia Pictures and Amblin Entertainment present... I knew it. This is an alien, and you guys are from some government agency trying to keep it under wraps. Nah. <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones. I'm gonna count to three. He'll do it, Jeeves. One. I'm telling you, that man does not look stable. Two. He's always crazy. Why don't you get a massage or take a cruise? Three. Do you have any idea how much that stings? Will Smith. What the hell are you? Your world's gonna end. In a new film from the director of The Addams Family and Get Shorty. Men in Black, protecting the Earth from the scum of the universe. You know how to use these things? No idea whatsoever. Okay, so Men in Black, 1997, sci-fi action comedy, directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, um, starring Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith, and based on the comic book series... The Men in Black by my uncle Lowell, Lowell Cunningham. <laughs> <laughs> James, we need to start there before we get before we get into the movie because we can we can talk a lot about Men in Black and kind of its its place in I don't know Will Smith's career in um, in like blockbuster cinema, but <laughs> we need to get to the bottom of this. This is a comic book movie, and I had no idea for a long time than it was. And um, to be honest, I'm still now baffled by this because 
it's a Marvel comic, but it's a Marvel comic because they bought the company that published it, right? Yeah. Well, in fact, they bought the company that bought the company that published it. Oh. So what happened was, um, in 1990, uh, Laurel Cunningham and artist Sandy Carruthers produced, uh, I think, six issues originally. It was two three-issue series of a comic called The Men in Black, uh, published by a company called Aircell, Aircell Comics. Um, when the when Aircell uh, went bankrupt, they and their properties were bought by a comics company called Malibu, who... I don't think they ever actually published any Men in Black. I'm not sure. They may have republished the original series. Um, but basically, it was like this little black and white indie book. And at some point, Marvel bought Malibu. Um, because Malibu had a really good um, colouring technology. They had compu- They, I think they were the first people to have co- uh, computer colouring. So Marvel oh, bought I do Malibu. remember this. Yeah, Marvel bought Malibu in order to get hold of their colouring department and sort of flirted a bit with republishing Malibu's superhero comics before eventually just shuttering the entire line. Um, so there's but, never been any occasion where Men in Black has been a part of the Marvel Universe? No. That much, that has never happened. Um, what has you, happened is that your reboot around... you could do with Guardians of the Galaxy, surely. Quite. <laughs> they do, uh, I think at one point in this movie they call themselves the Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Marvel did actually publish some, I think they published a movie adaptation and they republished the first issue and did a follow up one shot that was a okay. sequel to the movie. Um, and essentially. That's Men in Black's entire history in comics. Like, it was a very, uh, very small property that somehow made it big. And I think we've talked about this before. This is kind of something that came out of the success of the Turtles, which is that some black and white indie comic turned out to be sort of pop culture, a pop culture goldmine. And so industry sort of went out looking for other black and white comics that could have the same... Same impact. And Men in Black, I think, was picked up for that reason. Which is insane, because you would you would think, looking back, that strategy is dumb. It's really <laughs> dumb, right? To go, Turtles was a huge commercial hit, so let's just mind the indie comics black and white world to find other comics that maybe might work on the same level. I mean, but, is it... Hey, is it, it paid off. It's, it's, it, you know, it's kind of essentially saying, well, this comics industry has done the creative R&D for us. We're well, maybe. There. Let's pick it up and license it. That's fair enough. Um, did it, was there, Were there other comics, though, that, like, kind of... I, I'm trying to think of the comic book movies that came out in the 90s. I guess we thought there was a Spawn movie, wasn't there? And Or is that a little bit later on? I'm trying to think, is are there any other parallels to Men in Black and Turtles? Uh, in, the Tick would be a... F- fairly Mm. big one Cadillacs and dinosaurs like these are I think they mainly became Saturday morning cartoons rather than movies Um, right okay but yeah Cadillacs and dinosaurs was based on Xenozoic Tales which was similar territory like black and white indie comic that got turned into a computer game and a cartoon series we uh, we spoke about on the Turtles episode how different the ultimately the version of Turtles that became successful in movies and Yes. Cartoons and toys was from the original concept. I'm looking at the front cover of <laughs> the, of Men in Black issue one, which is a guy in a black suit and shades holding a gun, but it looks like the front cover is like 
blood splattered as well and there is a very scantily clad lady on the front page so was the was the men in black comic book series tonally or plot wise at all similar to what the movie ended up being there are there are very small elements that end up being similar like the thing of having agents named after their initials or named after letters like j and k the stars and z is in in there and x is in there um that's the same i would say the tone is a lot different it's more of a straight up sort of x-files thing where they are investigators who chase after the paranormal and you know clear it away before anyone finds out Mm. um the characters are completely different there's certainly none of the comedic aspect to it you know that's all later edition um so yeah it's quite different and like also to be frank the comics are not great like they have you know they have this very kind of indie like if you viewed in the context of these two kids did it for free out the back of their shed or whatever yeah they're pretty good but by modern standards you wouldn't be like oh this is a good comic you'd be like this reads like a couple of kids made it for fun and so it's so interesting then that ultimately this ends up in the hands of producer Steven Spielberg <laughs> and, and becomes one of the biggest, most successful movies of the 90s that goes on to spawn, you know, a pretty a pretty immediate sequel and a, and a very belated sequel a decade later. Um, and a potential ca- reboot, I think. Yeah, no, I think. And an think, animated show, maybe? There was a cartoon show, you're right. It's it's very bizarre um, that that happened, but hey, I'm glad it did. If for this movie alone, mm-hmm. um, Caroline, I, I I think you're a similar age to me, so I think probably you would have experienced this movie the same way that I did. That it was released like kind of during your childhood and was mm-hmm. a was kind of a, a. I'm trying to think. Probably James, maybe a similar way to you experiencing maybe Batman for the first time. I don't know. Uh, but yeah. like this, just this cultural, pop cultural behemoth one summer that came along and you just couldn't miss. And I don't, th- I, I'm pretty sure I didn't see this in cinemas, but I remember this being one of like the collection of, of like four or five non-animated movies that I had on VHS as a child. <laughs> um, there was this bizarrely Independence Day, which I should not have owned at that young an age. Uh, but yeah, it was obviously all about Will Smith. And Lost in Space was another one, actually. Mm-hmm. It, I, think it tend- I think it tended to be was like, it was the DVD that was, oh, sorry, the, the VHS that was on promotion at Tesco's when you spend X amount on something else, you can have this for $4.99. Uh, but yeah, we ended up with Men in Black and it was a prized possession. So Caroline, do you have a similar relationship to this that I do? Um, and I'm, I'm guessing I'm just really interested why this was one of the movies that you wanted to talk about on the podcast yeah well first of all on a side note i'm not over you guys just calling them the turtles was the cutest thing i've ever heard <laughs> i've never really heard them referred to as just the turtles well, That's clearly a i've been kind of holding that <laughs> I- in i would always call them the teenage mutant ninja like refer to them as their full title for some Listen, reason caroline there was no one else named the turtles that you could possibly confuse <laughs> them it's with. just no i mean i knew what you're talking about it was just really a sweet little nickname but i do think i have a similar experience with men in black as you i I'm going to be referring this... to Men in Black as the men for the rest of this Yeah, <laughs> the <know>. men. <laughs> um, I 
rewatching this, I was like, oh, I remember every word of this movie. Like, I uh, must yeah. have absorbed it enough. I don't. It, I don't think it was something we owned on VHS or DVD. I think. It must have just been on TV a lot. I feel like that's my memory of it. it was just constantly airing on TV and just re Like, I could really quote, like, whole scenes from it. Feels like a very comforting film to return to. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't think I have necessarily thought about it a ton since then. I actually didn't see the third one, so I don't know much about that. Um, but, yeah, it definitely is a film that I think of very fondly. And maybe even with just a slight remove, because it wasn't one of the ones we owned, it was like a little bit more of a treat to catch it on TV. <laughs> yeah. um, and I feel like it was one of those where even not when I was a kid, but just like kind of throughout my adolescence, you would flip it on and you were likely to see it on TV at some point. And the kind of movie that you can pick up halfway yeah. through and watch for 10 minutes and turn off and be just like, yeah, I enjoyed that or just be hooked and watching all the way to the end. It's that I, I don't know about you guys, but like, for me, through my childhood, Will Smith was the biggest star in the world because he was in all of these movies that were like it was literally the 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 thing about Will Smith was that he owned July Fourth weekend every year mm-hmm. because he was just guaranteed to open up a movie to X amount of money, and there were all of these original properties as well. It wasn't like he was signing up to this franchise and that franchise. He was occasionally doing sequels, but rarely. He was just dominant in that in 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 terms of being a movie star but also because from 1990 to 1996 he was in the fresh prince of bel-air and i don't know about in the, in the u.s but in the uk the fresh prince of bel-air was probably on on most nights of the week on bbc2 for like a decade after that so i grew up watching will smith on tv just about every day and then it didn't matter what year it was and what Will Smith movie was coming out in cinemas. I probably wanted to watch it because I was still enjoying watching him in one on my TV every week. Um, James, what what kind of relationship do you have with Men in Black? Do you, is it a movie that you've had any affection for, or is it just another one of those blockbusters that is? Hey, sorry. I mean, just to to go back to what you were saying about will smith being on tv constantly and like fresh prince being huge over here like i remember basically like every every day going to school and talking about the fresh prince in the playground like it was literally (laughs) everyone was watching it and everyone found it hilarious like we all loved it and so when men in black came out this like will smith had been in films before uh Mm. i think bad boys came out before this didn't it yeah Uh, and independence day was the year before too yeah. yeah, so it's it, it it really intriguing. So he he kind of like made his big movie debut in Six Degrees of Separation to an extent. Then does Bad Boys and Independence Day, and then Men in Black. And Men in Black was the last film that he was making while he was still doing Fresh Prince. So Fresh Prince ended, yeah. and he joined production of this two weeks late because he was finishing off his last his Fresh Prince <laughs> obligations, and then turned up on the set. For so this. yeah, they like. The, those Will Smith films, like Independence Day and Men in Black, were like absolutely massive. Like they were Jurassic Park size to us. Yeah. Um, I will say in the years since, like it's not something I've constantly revisited. Like I think I just, you know, after the Men in Black summer was over, I just let it go and went on to the next. You know, I was enjoying Godzilla the next year with everyone else. Um, <laughs> it's funny because it has it has faded for me as well. 
but probably only like as Will Smith's star faded. So I, I think I was probably this movie probably was quite dominant in my like blockbuster cinema pantheon anyway until yeah until like you start to get to like seven pounds and hancock and he he disappeared for a few years didn't he before he came back with men in black three and men in black mm-hmm. three was a was a debacle in a lot of ways shutting down production midway through and it's not it's not a horrible movie but it's a it's a movie that has some quite obvious flaws um but yeah, I think it was. Pro- I think that was probably what it took for me to, I don't know, not have quite as close a relationship with Men in Black as I as I used to. But rewatching this, um, I don't know about you guys. It's just, it's ninety eight minutes long, and that's with ten minutes of credits. <laughs> it absolutely bounces by. Will Smith is great. Yeah, you, we you, you, you made the joke in the uh, when we were talking about Green Lantern, but yeah, that that buddy cop dynamic here is just superb because Tommy Lee Jones is as dry as you can get. Um, I I really like his performance in this movie is so good. <laughs> I, and it I just, feels it like a movie that Tommy he's... Lee Jones for every other movie because <laughs> I'm just like he was so he's so funny in not being funny. And he seems like he's having, like, you can watch Tommy Lee Jones movies and go, he quite obviously does not want to be there. <laughs> That's not this movie. I was watching, I watched the. I watched some special features and commentary and, like, he was indulging Barry Sonnenfeld on the commentary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. True, this DVD. And <laughs> just like, you could tell he was just like, yeah, I just kind of enjoyed the experience of making this movie. I'm quite happy to go back and talk about it and just tee Sonnenfeld up to talk about the things that they're asking me to tee him up to talk about. And occasion and like speaking with kind of like genuine passion for the, the process of making the film. Um, and yeah, I, I, I just, I kind of like, it was like meeting back up with an old friend for a drink, watching <laughs> this movie. Um, and, you know, that old friend didn't stay long enough to outstay their welcome and make me realise why we're not friends anymore. Because <laughs> 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 it was only here for 98 minutes, so it was it was a blast. Um, the first half hour of this movie, you guys, is... I don't know if you'd agree, really, really excellent. Kind of introduces you to three separate plot threads very much separately. Um, but does so in a way that kind of 
gives you a great idea of what this world is and what this story is and at a pace that never really lets up you kind of you get you meet Tommy Lee Jones first and you get introduced to the concept of aliens in our world and men in black agents you then meet Will Smith who's a cop who's not a member of the um of the men in black yet but he is having some encounter with this weirder side of the world and then we meet Vincent D'Onofrio who to start with is just um an asshole farmer but very shortly after that is Vincent D'Onofrio's skin stretched over an alien's <laughs> body. Um, and it, it it's like half an hour in that Will Smith is being called into... That Tommy Lee Jones is meeting him and calling him into like for, to interview for the Men in Black. And it takes half an hour for those two story points to even touch each other. And kind of like another... 20 30 minutes for the Edgar Bug stuff to proper, properly weave itself in. Um and it is it's, it's kind of a breakneck movie and I just I just love the pace of it and I love the I kind of love all those three aspects of the movie. I think it does such a good job of building that world in a way that could have felt very disconnected or ham-fisted but somehow never does. It's truly shocking to watch a big summer blockbuster or what was a big summer blockbuster. That's like you say, 98 minutes. Like it just, <laughs> and it, in, and it, certainly now we're used to the like two and a half hour movie, but even independence day, which Will Smith had made the year before and which I consider to be the best movie ever made um, <laughs> is also two and a half hours long. Like that Does was that not, true? I love independence day. I, I love um, independence day, but that's, Oh, I will show. watch. I truly think it is a master. I mean, well, now we're really on a tangent. I think Roland Emmerich is one of our greatest filmmakers. <laughs> I think all of his disaster movies are perfect. Um, and Independence Day is the most perfect of them all. I never watched Resurgence, Caroline. Is it? Is that? Oh, I didn't watch it either, actually. But okay, I've heard so... not good things. Um, okay. <laughs> but yeah, the, the breakneck pace, like you're saying, and just how efficient it is. Like watching this, and we can even talk about, we can talk about it, but at times I was almost wondering if it was too efficient but it really is just crazy to think that this was a a massive summer blockbuster that is under an hour 40. And I think that also speaks to, like, Men in Black is a little bit more of a, I don't want to say a kid's film, but I think it's geared more as a family film. It's than a, something it like Independence first. Day. Yeah, it's a comedy, and it's very, like, like, you can watch this as a kid and not be freaked out. And I think that was the reason, too. Like, I remember Independence Day... It was like, oh, Caroline, you're too young to watch that one. But Men in Black, it's like, oh, of course you can watch that one. And I wonder, too, because I feel like you said, Joe, that, like, I really love it and I have so much affection for it. But I don't revisit it a ton as opposed to, like, Independence Day, which I will watch any time. But especially, like, around the 4th of July. Um, and I do think it's because it, you know, the, the length of it, the comedy of it, it does feel geared to be sort of like a family film. Maybe even the kind of family film that we don't make as much anymore. I feel no, like we're absolutely. in a... Yeah. We're in a time where the the comic book superhero stuff is a little bit more geared towards adults or there's stuff that's just for kids. And this sort of like, yeah, everyone can watch this and be engaged with it. I mean, this it is from feels... the director of the two Adams Family movies. Yeah. That's... Which I also love. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I think Adam... we, have we talked about that before? They're technically comic book films too, you know. Are they? Well, Adams Family span out of a comic uh, little cartoon strip. Hmm. Maybe we have to cover it because um, 
Adam's Family Values, one of the most underrated, I hate that word, but it is, one of the most underrated <laughs> sequels of all time. It's Wednesday, best Wednesday, Adams. Adams. Wednesday Adams was like my icon growing up. I was like, yeah. I'm going to be like that. I was her for Halloween one year. Uh, <laughs> As a child. Guys, I, um, I once interviewed Baby Pubert. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> we'll save that one for the podcast. Uh, yeah, maybe we have to. Joan Cusack in that movie, one of the greatest movie villains. <laughs> She's just fantastic. Um, yeah, so I, uh, Perry Sonnenfeld's an interesting one, though. You know, like, uh, uh, as a director, I mean, so he, he starts out as a cinematographer. He worked with the Coens on Blood Simple, Raising Arizona. He shot Big, When Harry Met Sally, Miller's Crossing, Misery. Uh, and then becomes a director. He... It, Two huge hits with Adam Family, Adam Family Values. He directed Get Shorty and then Men Men in Black after this. Um and then, <laughs> then it goes wrong. That, yeah, and then it goes wrong. And it goes wrong to start with with Will Smith in Wild Wild West. It goes wrong to an extent again with Men in Black 2. Um and he I was going to say he never really gets his shot again, but he does with Men in Black 3. Bizarrely, I almost forget he directed that. Um, but it's kind of a, a career that just kind of petered out. Um, and listening to how he handled this movie, um, I'm not sure whether he is a, a, a good director or was a good director or whether he is a guy that was surrounded by the right people. So this is a movie directed by Steven, uh, sorry, produced by Steven Spielberg. Obviously, the casting is spot on. Um, but my, uh, I mean, yeah, D'Onofrio, <laughs> Linda Fiorentino, every, everyone in this movie pretty much is great. Rip Torn, uh, everyone. But then you look at kind of, I think, the, the two secret weapons or not so secret weapons because you can't miss their work in this movie. Danny Elfman's score and Rick Baker's creature effects. I, I, I imagine Men in Black with, without either of those two elements, particularly Rick Baker, who just the. Um, I mean, Caroline, when you're on this podcast for the first time, we spent so long admiring the turtle suit, <laughs> not the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle suit. Yeah, the just turtle the turtles. Suits. Um, <laughs> and Rick Baker's effects in this movie. So much of this was not CGI. A lot of the time, characters that you see in certain scenes where they begin as puppets, you might see certain shots of them when they're in motion as it as CGI. But Mikey, when we first meet him at the start, is a full Rick Baker character. Uh, the baby, the baby squid alien, is a Rick Baker character. The worms who are pouring the coffee are Rick Baker designs. Um the only one that's not pretty much is the full-on manifestation of Edgar Bug at the end of the movie. And I think that's notable, you know? Yeah, I remember the de- thinking the design for Edgar was bad. Yeah. But all of the others... This I, does I, seem to be... This, like, mid to late 90s seems to be a good time for... We're using CGI, but we're still doing a lot of things... Like in the real world as well, or, or yeah, or puppetry or whatever. And it feels like just a little bit after this, we got way too much into the CGI. And if you look at the stuff before, like this was really, because I, I associate this mostly with Jurassic Park, which was 93. But like, 
that mm. nine, 92 to 97 window was like a real good time for finding the balance of those two things, I think. <laughs> yeah, where you could, because so, so in this movie, for uh, Mikey is a good example at the start. Mikey is introduced and is that is a guy in a in a suit that's being puppeteered on set. Um, so the, the, the Mikey that you actually see revealed is is completely physical effects. It's only when he turns around and starts running that they started using CGI. But because the CGI was completely grounded in Rick Baker's design, it was done from molds of the Rick Baker puppet, um, they're able to execute it in a way that seems fairly flawless, I think. Um, similarly, the little alien who is inside the head of the of the kind of... The, oh, yeah, that one looks great. Oh, that is one. I think that's... I'd I'd forgot I'd forgotten that that was coming when I was watching the movie. So there is a there's like a a diplomat from one of the alien races yeah. <laughs> in this film, who is this like short little nebbishy guy, and he dies, and then they find like a little button on his ear, click it, and open the face. And apparently, what they did for that scene was they created a small model that was kind of like a small alien model that could fit inside the head of the larger kind of cast of the actor that they created uh but also what they created was an 11 foot version of that tiny alien <laughs> and then and then shot that so that's how you get all the movements because the mouth is at when when the mouth is moving in the movie the puppet's mouth was moving and all of those all of those movements were puppeteered from a rick baker design and then they just like sh- like perspective made it appear like that was still inside the head of this guy um it's it's really remarkable what this movie managed to pull off and i i watching it i was i was thinking do you know what i think when it when it comes down to it the things that i remember about men in black there's the performances of the of the central duo but it's it's mostly those little bits of iconography because to be honest, the alien world that this movie creates, not the alien world, maybe that's unfair, but the, the plot of this movie is not that interesting and not that good. But the idea of just the casual nature of how the men in black are introduced, the casual nature of how aliens interact with our world is effectively built and then you buy it because it all looks so gorgeous and you you have all of these these weird and wonderful creatures being realized so fantastically and that's what when i come back to the movie that's what i remember about it and that's what i kind of that's what i stay for i think it's such a good example of that efficient world building that i honestly feel like modern day blockbusters aren't always as good at doing and that they they feel the need i feel like contemporary movies feel the need to like really explain everything or establish like, I don't know, all these clear rules right at the start. And Men in Black, it's like, you just get thrown into it. And like you say, it's a very simple plot. It's basically just like a chase film with a clear cut bad guy. But like the world building around that just sort of unfolds and you get it as you go along. And it doesn't need to be like, now we stop and like explain everything. I think it's the Harry Potter problem that like, I mean, and Harry Potter is a, amazing narrative feat but it just goes to lengths to explain through that first book every aspect and and in fact through the whole series it's just like and now here's a different area of the world that you're going to 
experience. Whereas Men in Black, what it does is just goes, I, I mean, oh God, what is the, the, the actual quote in the scene where Tommy Lee Jones is talking to Will Smith and says, 500 years ago, man fought yeah. the earth is flat. 15 minutes ago, you thought we were we were alone in this world. Um, and it's it's kind of just that perfect explanation of, do you know what? The thing that you thought is not accurate. I'm just telling you that this whole world exists and through little glimpses here, there and everywhere, you're going to buy that that world exists. <laughs> and you do. You really do within I, seconds. I remember thinking literally thinking about um thor in the middle of this film going like you know thor opened with like a 15 20 minute yeah. intro dump and this film just goes yeah aliens let's get on with it like, you know there's, and no, Lord- there's no standing around explaining every aspect of like what asgard is or anything and um i think lord of the rings maybe along the lord of the rings films along with the harry potter movies and books which i and i am like you will not find a bigger lord of the fan of the lord of the rings movies than me but that similarly opens with like a long prologue that explains everything and i feel like i was going to use that as a flip side of the example though as like if something that i i think lord of the rings is actually very similar to what this movie does (laughs) lord of the rings tells you one isolated story in this world it doesn't introduce like okay there's the men over here and the elves over here and the kids it goes here is a story from the past of middle earth and then let's get into the storytelling. Yeah. And when you when you spend half an hour, or if you're watching the extended edition, God knows how long in Hobbiton <laughs> at the start, that's not that's not teaching you about the dynamics of the world you're going to take part in. That's just that's character building stuff that you're about to depart from. That I, I kind of think that's what this movie does. That it tells you, it kind of like tells you a mini story right at the start, which is Mikey, I guess, that doesn't really relate to anything else that's going on. And then just goes, so now you have an idea about the world and a, and the smallest amount of, of context about who the men in black are. Let's go from there. I think I, I think Lord of the Rings, I'd argue that Lord of the Rings does that. But also Lord of the Rings has, what, 12 hours to play with, whereas this movie has 98 minutes. <laughs> I think Lord of the Rings does it well, but other movies looked at that and they were like, oh, that movie starts with mm. a long prologue. Let's yes. do that. Because every, I feel like half the Marvel movies, especially any of the Thors or, <laughs> it's just like, we need a long prologue. Green, or honestly, Green even Lantern, Ant-Man. Ant-Man Sean opens Carter. with this like weird exposition scene in like the 80s or whatever. And it's like, the audience cannot, you have to ease an audience into a movie. You can't, and Lord of the Rings, I think is the exception. But all these other movies, it's like, we're throwing all this exposition at you and you can't, you don't remember it in, within a minute or two. And so it's like, what was the point of that? Whereas Men in Black, first it opens with a cool like credit sequence where you're following uh. this little bug who ends up getting <laughs> squished and is irrelevant. And then I think it's very smart in rooting. Which is it's kind of the plot of the movie. Scene, yeah. <laughs> it's rooting its opening scene in a humanity more so than a plot-driven thing, which is that we have this group of Mexican immigrants who are trying to cross over the border. Illegal aliens. All undocumented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, illegal aliens. And um, we get these kind of like asshole cops who are there to sort of harass them or turn them around. And then we get the men in black that show up. And I think so much is established in the way... Tommy Lee Jones and the way Jay um, or Kay, sorry, in the way that Kay, like, he just treats them all with humanity <laughs> when he speaks. He's like speaking Spanish with them. He's treating them like people. And then even when he gets to the guy who, you know, joke, joke, is actually a literal alien. Um, 
he even kind of like tries to treat him with humanity until he becomes a threat. That's the Mikey guy you were talking about. And like, it just establishes this weird, like humanistic perspective. And you sort of get who Kay is as a character and you get the dynamic between him and his partner. And there's, we don't need a monologue establishing that we just sort of get it from watching it. And I think that works so much better than any of that front loading of exposition. And I, I love, I love that. Um, aspect to Kay's character where he's clearly set up as like the grizzled grumpy you know straight laced too old for this shit version of the buddy cop dynamic but from very early on we're given the we're, we're showing the humanity in the character and I think it's important that like from very early on you see that Kay has picked Jay that Kay is it, it feels like a it feels like a slightly paternal mentor relationship. Um, because you can have this buddy cop dynamic. You can have the two of them genuinely not liking each other the whole way through. And maybe each of them only really seeing the other one's virtues at the end. And you've got a bit of, you've got a bit of like tension between the two of them because one's a guy who's seen everything and this is just another day on the job. And for the other guy, it's like, holy shit, the world's about to end. (laughs) Um, but they they both kind of intrinsically like each other, so even when they're butting heads, it feels kind of I don't know. It, it's a relationship that you want to spend time with because you can tell that they both kind of care about each other and respect each other, and both think that the other one is actually pretty damn good at the job they're doing. <laughs> I think, and I think a lot of movies too sort of do this thing where it's like, oh, we want to see a protagonist who's like struggling and can't figure anything out. And that's gonna be so relatable. Like the Luke Skywalker, like, oh, he's just a kid. And then he's gonna learn some skills. But I think it's so satisfying to watch people who are good at their jobs. And they do a really good job of both making Kay good at his job. And making Jay making Will Smith's character. He's new to the men in black world, but they they go to such lengths to establish why he's such a good fit for this world. And again, it's not this monologue about like oh this this kid you know he's breaking these rules and he's doing this and we're going to explain it all like we just see it when he's the one that's when they're trying to chase down a criminal he's the one that's going to all these (laughs) he's going to all these like incredible lengths and we see his ingenuity in action and then even in something as as like i don't want to say subtle this isn't a subtle movie but something where they're all sort of taking taking little written tests when he's part of a group that's being recruited for the, you know, potential men and black candidates. And they're all sitting in these weird egg chairs and they are struggling to write, you know, take the test and like using their laps and whatever. And he's the one that thinks to get up and move the coffee table over to where he is. And just in that moment, you get the sense of like, yeah, this is a guy who's very smart, very capable, but willing to think outside the box in a way that makes him the ideal men and black person. Do you think those other guys ever had a chance or were they just brought in to see if he could do it? <laughs> I, I feel like, the, no, I feel like those were Zed's choices. And yeah, then... they're, Zed's, they're Zed's guys and this is <laughs> and this is uh, Kay's guy. But I mean, it's a bit like Captain America too, where it's like Steve, and I mean, talk about like Tommy Lee Jones and it's somewhat similar roles, but it's like, yeah, Steve is not the obvious choice maybe because he's this little scrawny guy, but he's got the heart and he's got the brains. And, he's the one who jumps and, on the grenade. Do you know, yeah, do you know what exactly. it is, you guys? It's... It does in five to ten minutes what Kingsman takes the first yeah. hour of its movie doing. It is, <laughs> it is. Let's bring in this guy who is the least on, like on the surface, the least obvious choice for this job. Um, but we see how kind of what makes him different 
also makes him the best. And it is ingenuity, it's humanity, it's seeing things from a slightly different angle. And it's just being kind of like good at being a cop. Well, do you know yeah. what? This is, this is a cop, but just for a, a world that you don't know yet. And so often these stories are like, oh, it's the rookie cop or it's the kid who doesn't know anything. And this is such a good balance of he's the rookie men in black guy, but he's also super talented. And I find that so satisfying to watch. And I wish more movies did that sort of like, yeah, people can be compelling to watch, even if they're not bad at their jobs. <laughs> I lo- um, uh, One of my favorite, po- my favorite podcast is Blank Check and Blank Check. They're always talking about how like how satisfying it is to watch movies where people are good at their jobs. So like The Post last year, there's mm-hmm. just something satisfying about s- watching journalists who are good at being journalists. <laughs> I'm just imagining, like, could you do, like, a John Grisham thriller where the lawyer's like an idiot? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, I don't really know what I'm doing. That's Got a, a medal through. <laughs> but this is, this is a movie about people who are good at their jobs. And I was just trying to think, could you... Is there, a, like, a Will Smith character or a Tommy Lee Jones character who are, like, hapless and incompetent? Because... You just don't get that vibe from these two actors. I can't imagine Will Smith walking on screen and you going, "Yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. he, he doesn't he doesn't know what he's he doesn't know what he's doing." Like that's kind of the joke in Fresh Prince is that like the joke is that everyone thinks he doesn't know what he's doing, but actually he's a lot smarter than he's been wanting to let on. I mean, um, the the thing I take away from that is like Will Smith. I think is one of like the last big movie stars like. The, the industry changed sort of post him. Like there aren't yeah, no, many I, people I, on that sort of level anymore. And that's something that tended to happen with those big movie stars is like, they turn up and are the best. And I think, no, I think you're literally right, James. I think the, the back end of Will Smith's movie career uh, in terms of like being a guy who can open a movie to X mm-hmm. amount of money. I don't think, I don't think it, like him and Tom Cruise kind of both petered out at the same time. And I'm not sure anyone has ever, it's, now what we have is characters that can open a movie to yeah. X mm-hmm. amount of money rather than actors. Well, I mean, and that's something when I saw Edge of Tomorrow, I remember thinking like, oh, it was unusual to see Tom Cruise in a role where he's like the the sort of, you know, the less doofus. competent guy learning, yeah, learning to be good at, at which stuff. is Which is now what he's leaning into because he, he was that in The Mummy and the, <laughs> and the Mission Impossible franchise has pivoted from look at this guy who's just like the best agent to it's not, it's not necessarily that he's good. It's that he's fucking insane. Like the movies are always <laughs> the, the the last three mission impossible movies have just been going. Are you kidding me? Why is he doing that? <laughs> no, no sane rational person would do that. And that's like, it, there's a meta narrative there, of course, but like it's, <laughs> it's worked incredibly well for the mission impossible franchise. Um, but yeah, there aren't, there aren't movie stars like that anymore, I don't think. Yeah, I don't know if I fully drilled this home earlier in the conversation, but I am such a big Will Smith fan. And <laughs> I think for so much of my life, because he was just kind of like a presence when I was a kid, and it just felt like he was always around, I also really enjoyed Fresh Prince. Um, I just sort of took him for granted. And it's really only within the past couple of years that I've just like appreciated him as a person who had to work to to do all of these things. <laughs> yeah. And especially this run of like late era, Fresh Prince, Bad Boys, Independence Day, Men in Black, like 
I don't know if it gets better than that. That's like the prime Will Smith era for me. It's Other Jim than, Carrey, but for action movies a couple yeah. of years later. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, per- like that little grouping is just perfect. And then my second favorite Will Smith era is his current era as a YouTube star. I don't know if you guys are aware. I don't know if the <laughs> listeners are aware, but Will Smith has a YouTube channel. It's incredible. Everyone needs to go subscribe. It's just like <laughs> short, goofy, uplifting videos of him doing like, either telling stories or jumping out of an airplane or going to Australia and like experiencing the culture. And it's just that like goofy persona that we love, but now he's like a goofy dad. And sometimes he'll bring his kids on and they're so adorable and start with a video of him telling the story of how he first met Michael Jackson, because that one's so good. And I just watch it when I need an uplift. I I had no idea that this was a thing, but you can bet I'm going to be watching it later. (laughs) It's so good. And none of them are too long. And it's just like, yeah, this is, this is a good, and I like him in Suicide Squad. Honestly, I, I (laughs) didn't fully hate Bright. Like I will kind of watch Will Smith in anything. I'm just a fan. I can't think of a Will Smith seven pounds might be the one but i can't really think other than that of a, a will smith movie that i dislike him in. i was gonna say there's no, uh, there after no earth, bad maybe. Will smith performances right uh, no after earth is lots okay, of questionable yeah, not, choices were made in that film <laughs> after earth is an is an interesting movie though That's but the yeah there's with, not the... with jade in him right Yes. Yeah, and yeah. Will is playing a very, I think intentionally he was trying to do the the opposite of a traditional Will Smith performance where he's like a yeah. stoic, emotionless leader rather than the Pro- charismatic guy. And it like Pro- didn't awesome. really work. Yeah. <laughs> there is a part in that in After Earth, though, where Jaden, he's like on the planet alone and he's got a, he's got some sort of like special tech suit. And there's a part where the suit, the suit like turns black when danger's coming. And there's a line where he says, oh, dad, it's turning black. I like it, but I think it means something bad is going to happen. But it's not delivered as a joke. It's like a in the middle of a straight-up crisis, he stops to say, I like the new color of my suit, but I'm about to die. And that's <laughs> when I just start to question the, the choices that were made in that film. That was M. Night Shyamalan, right? Yes, uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, they kept it quiet during the marketing. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, M- it was M. Night in his... Uh, just got to build up some Hollywood credit period again. Yeah. And hey, he's come back. We've got he's Glass back. coming up next year and I am excited. <laughs> um, Will Smith in Men in Black specifically though, he is, this is like movie star at their height of their powers stuff. Like he, they just, they hand him like, the, like I'm trying to think, this is probably the era where like maybe Arnie has passed on the torch to will smith here arnie's coming off the movies where he's got the catchphrase in every movie like the scene where will smith the line i did on the on last week's episode where he walks into the camera goes you know the difference between you and me (laughs) i make this look good like that is just like someone's written that to be the like record scratch moment i was gonna say i remember that from the trailer like i remember that independent of the context of the entire film and it's and one of my favorite lines from this movie and it's similar to a, another movie not massively far apart from this um which i owned on vhs uh the matrix in the matrix is a scene very early on where one of the cops says don't give me none of that jurist my addiction crap and i was like <laughs> that was just a line that was in my head forever after that <laughs> whenever i and... hear the word jurisdiction i always think jurist my addiction <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. And the same in this movie. Whenever I hear NYPD, I think, knock your punk ass down. 
It's just, I love it. I love it so much. And Will Smith is, he's great in this. And apparently everyone got like the chance to riff a little bit with the script. So the scene where he jumps onto the bus and say, hey, it's just raining black men on buses in New York. Yeah. Yeah. It's hilarious. And he wrote that, like he wrote that side between scenes apparently just suggested Sonnenfeld and Sonnenfeld said yeah try it Uh, (laughs) he's very funny and I think that's the thing about Will Smith is you can or at least me personally it's like you take I take that for granted it's like you don't think mm. about that that takes a lot of work to be that funny and to come up with those things and like that's a there's a craft there and I think very funny but charismatic and likable at the same time yeah and there's a like it doesn't he doesn't just feel like a clown and I think it's interesting to contrast this with Wild Wild West which is an all-around disaster and I think that was a time when, like, Will Smith had maybe gotten a little too big. And he did kind of feel like, oh, he could sort of control that. Like, I feel like at Men in Black, he's so charismatic and good, but he understands his function within the role or within the film, and he doesn't, like, step outside that. And I feel like with Wild Blood West, the balance just got off. And so, yeah, those are interesting movies to contrast, I think. Yeah, and the fact that Sonnenfeld directs it after this. Um, yeah. I do, I do want to keep coming back to Sonnenfeld because... The way that he talks about making this movie, it it does feel to an extent like they almost kept like happening across really great stuff. So that first scene where um where they they uh where Will Smith chases down the alien around the Guggenheim wasn't originally supposed to be the Guggenheim. I think it was supposed to be the Philharmonic and it was uh they wanted too much money, so they kind yeah. of like happened happened across the Guggenheim at the last minute, and that's just such I mean, Sonnenfeld does direct it incredibly. I don't want to say like he he's talentless or like is complete is entirely lucky, but it just happens to be the perfect setting for that scene. And it's a building that kind of looks like a spaceship. Yeah, it's it, it it's kind of perfect, and they and they happened across it. Um, it seems like they didn't really know what they were going to be getting in D'Onofrio. That they were just like, oh yeah, it's the Full Metal Jacket guy. We got the Full Metal Jacket guy and. That performance, that physical performance from D'Onofrio <laughs> is, I remember, like, finding out, it, you know, it must have been five or six years ago at this point, but find like, finding out, re- looking at D'Onofrio on IMDb and going, Men in Black, what's he in Men in Black? Mm-hmm. Oh, you fucking, he was Edgar Bug. <laughs> yeah, you do forget, because the only time he looks like himself is that brief scene where he's actually the, the human farmer before he gets taken over. And then once he's taken over and he does that thing with his chin and, like, I don't know <sighs> if they did prosthetics or whatever, but, like, he's unrecognizable once he becomes the bug version. Well, and from from the very start when it's kind of, like, it is still recognizably D'Onofrio, but, like, contorted but right towards the very end where the skin is basically rotting off and <laughs> it, but he's uh, the, the way that he talks the way that he moves he's a terrifying villain in a movie that's kind of that, that otherwise is knockabout and then and the moment you lose D'Onofrio the moment that that CG Edgar is revealed mm. is the movie is the moment where the movie kind of loses you and it's such a shame because again that was su- that was supposed to be a Rick Baker design and essentially the movie was going to end with like a, a philosophical debate between Will Smith and Edgar Bug um, and they decided that they needed more action in the final <laughs> sequence so went CG instead um, and I I don't know. Edgar Bug looks a bit naff. The final showdown is a bit naff because 
it just doesn't feel as tactile as the rest of the movie, I don't think. Um, and also, because really none of it seems to matter. I don't know if you, don't know if you, guys, yeah. you guys would agree. None of the actual plot of the movie seems to matter. And I, I like that in a way because it is the way that Tommy Lee Jones is treating it by like... Another day in the, the office, yeah. The, yeah, this is just another Tuesday. Uh, whereas Will Smith is like, shit, the world's going to end. And as an audience member, I think you do get that as well because the villain is uh, a, a genuine threat and, you, you know, you're told that the world could be blown up in an hour. It feels like it could. Um, but yeah, the, but the actual plot and the mechanics of the plot is just nonsense. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> That's could... the one place where I think it lacks efficiency a little bit because it is sort of this weird like edgar's the main villain edgar as his wife calls him and then but then there's these other people who aren't bad but they're in space and they're going to blow up the earth just to prevent him from getting something and it starts to get in this convoluted and once you get to the stakes of like the whole earth is going to be destroyed i almost wish they had gotten a little bit smaller with that and especially once you get to the stakes of like the earth is going to be destroyed in six minutes it's like okay wait this is like it's too much (laughs) It's it's somehow do, too much and really not enough. Skim o- like they do kind of skim over why the galaxy is important and sort of yeah why it would be bad if Edgar got hold of it. They're just like they keep telling you like bugs are bad, but you so know. guys, would you would you like me to uh, <laughs> <laughs> explain to you how this all came about? As I yeah, enlighten watching, us. watching <laughs> these special Please. features in the commentary. five minutes ago, we thought we were alone on the Earth, and now <laughs> you're going to tell us the truth. <laughs> yeah, f- five minutes ago, you thought that this movie began shooting, knowing what the ending was, <laughs> uh, which it it kind of did. Um, it knew that Ed- the showdown was going to be w- with Edgar, and that the Earth was going to be at threat from from some aliens but essentially the movie cut an entire race of aliens out of it um (laughs) and it managed to do that because all of the exposition about that stuff was delivered by aliens or it was delivered on that big egg-shaped screen in men in black headquarters so they were able either able to redub over frank the pug or put new information up on that big screen and the big scene that they changed is the moment where the two aliens meet in the diner uh so you've got Mm -hmm. you've got the alien who um, is killed and we see the little alien inside his face. He's a member of the royal family of the, the race of aliens that we see in there. And you've and got he Mr. Holm the... from Star Trek. Is that who that is? Yeah. Okay. He's Lurch and as he... well, I think, isn't he? Oh, so, oh sorry. I, I was, so he's Lurch, but I would know him as the giant from Twin Peaks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. That's the guy. Yeah. So that's, uh, and that guy who he meets in this movie is just kind of generic of an alien. Uh, we see him kind of briefly in the like customs area of the Men in Black headquarters, and then he goes and they go and meet at the restaurant. So they were originally supposed to be two different uh, races of alien, mm. and it was almost like the meeting of two diplomats. That makes and- sense because they go out of their way to emphasize the height difference between the two. Yes, which feels yeah. weird for something that's ostensibly the same race. <laughs> So in the original scene, they are talking in English to one another, and they are two diplomats from two warring. Uh, from two warring alien races and essentially the one guy is going to be handing over the galaxy that's on Orion's belt to the Twin Peaks giant guy Um, and so he's going to be handing over the uh, galaxy and that's going to basically broker the truce between the two races except then Edgar Bug who is intent on uh, destroying the soul and stealing the galaxy for himself comes over, kills them all and so what you get essentially in space is a Mexican standoff between these two alien mm. races. Mm. And they are 
And the explanation that is in the deleted scene is that, you know, in a Western when like two guys are shooting each other and they're hiding behind the rock? Earth's yeah. the rock. <laughs> so it's it's not so it's not that the aliens are threatening Earth. They're just shooting each other and Earth is going to get in the get way because the that would have actually been a funnier way to go. Yeah, but I, so they decided for whatever reason it didn't work. It was too complicated. They had an extra set, an extra race of aliens who didn't really yeah. impact on. I mean, to be honest, neither the, the the actual race who have Orion's Belt, who have that galaxy, are not. Really, you know, we never see them other than the guy who's in the in the man costume. Um, so I guess they just decided rather than have two kind of faceless races, let's just have one and. Edgar's the real villain of the movie anyway. But then it it leads you to wonder, like, would it have worked better if it was just Edgar and it was just the bug? That's movie? kind of where I land on. Except for I do like, and admittedly I think this played better when I was a kid than it does now, but I like the little mystery of the galaxy oh, actually no. being the little bobble on the cat's yeah. collar and he doesn't know the word for collar, so he mistakenly says belt, so then they get caught up in the the like constellation. I kind of always really liked that little mystery. And I think you lose that if Edgar is kind of the only villain, yeah. maybe, or maybe there's a way to work that in still, but yeah, uh, I pro- I probably, but I, I loved, I mean, I loved that. And I loved the, I love the reveal at the end. Men in black two tries to do it in a less efficient way. It's pretty much the only moment from men in black two. I can actually remember um, with, with all the doors opening at the end. But I love that idea of like, I think that's the that's the other main theme running through the movie of like, you know, this is the status quo. And five minutes ago you had no idea that this was the status quo. And so even and even the smartest guys in our universe who have had, you know, have had the curtain pulled back, still have no idea that we're just inside a marble, inside a bag of marbles at the end. <laughs> and, and we can like, it also we couldn't be tinier. It also plays into the idea that like your concerns are actually tiny in the grand scale of things. Yeah, because like they're always talking about like, you know, it literally starts with a bug being squashed by something bigger, and like the whole film is, you know, bugs being squashed effectively. Yeah. I love this uh, th- that we didn't we we talked about it briefly, but I love that opening scene of the movie because I think that's just a dragonfly, right? That's not an alien, but yeah, the way that the it's movie just sh- a dragon or is it um, a cicada? Maybe. No, I think <laughs> it's a, a bit... yeah, well, one of the two. Yeah, but either way, it's a it's it's just a an earth bug yeah that that i i, I love how he goes on this adventure and you're, you're kind of rooting for him, for him by the end of it you're like where are you gonna go what are you gonna do <laughs> but also I, I like the just the subtle hint of like it's just a bug but look how alien it looks mm-hmm. look how yeah. look how kind of otherworldly it looks mm-hmm. and so it's just it's just that nice little subtle touch in the right direction of you know it's it's not it's not that implausible if there's that that's actually a part of your world, is it really that bigger leap that there are things that look like that from other planets? Yeah. And I don't really want, I don't want to oversell the like philosophical and thematic depth of this movie because I think it mostly is concerned with being a fun action romp. But that idea, like you said, James, of, of like this dealing with scale and this, you know, something can be a marble but feel like a whole galaxy or a whole world, I think is really interesting and like has some weight to it. And then on the other side of things, like the whole idea of this thing of like, we met aliens and they were nice and they asked us for help. And now we've agreed to help them. And 
it's like a very, it's like a Paddington-esque, like, you know, (laughs) almost like a metaphor for refugees or immigration or like we can all coexist. And I think one, I mean, this, like one of the smartest lines in this movie is, is Tommy Lee Jones saying like a person is smart and people are dumb Mm -hmm. and like Uh. an individual person. It's like, it's like the moment in the prequels when, in the Star Wars prequels when Natalie Portman is like, this is how a democracy dies, you know, not with, with thunderous applause. And it's like, whoa, that this dumb movie like got super smart for a minute. And I feel like <laughs> yeah. that's the same moment for men in black. It's like, slipped a point three. yeah, like that's yeah. a, that's a really interesting idea that like individually you want to help individuals, but, but we live in this like scare culture where that isn't always possible. And the idea that these, I don't know, the men in black are mainly just there. It's like taking this idea of these scary government people, but they're actually just there to like, be kind to immigrants and facilitate goodness in the world. And when just, they come across someone that's trying to flee and his wife is having a baby, they're like, well, let us help you have the baby. Like it's a very welcoming and human and, or that's well, the, it's the ideal version of what, what police actually are. Yeah. Isn't it? It's that they are there basically to most of the time, just check that everything's ticking over correctly. Protect and when some, yeah. And when something goes wrong, they'll sort it out and then we'll move on. And yeah. that, and that just because there are a couple of bad eggs does not mean that society is bad. And in this movie, yeah, a, a horrible alien from the bug race turns up and wants to do, uh, wants to pretty much exterminate humanity. But that doesn't mean that like everyone's suddenly like, oh, all these other aliens are complete fuckers. They just like, oh no, everyone else just carry on doing what you're doing. To the point that when all of the aliens are kind of fleeing Earth, everyone's disappointed. They're like, ah, oh, really? You're leaving because this. Come on, guys! Like no one, no one even wants rid of them, and they've yeah. all kind of assimilated seamlessly into the world. And I think it would have been easy to make this a movie where it's about them hunting down aliens, and it's sort of like video game esque. Like, oh yeah, we go and hunt out the secret aliens and we kill them. But that's not what it is at all. It's very like we just let them coexist, and yeah, we're the police for the people that sort of like go wrong and even then they're not necessarily out to kill them unless it's a life or death situation and it's the kingsman scene again at the start isn't it where will smith is he goes and he shoots the little girl and he's like that guy's just working out that guy looks scary but he's clearly just got a cold and this little girl what's she doing there with school bucks dangerous neighborhood with all these monsters quantum physics that's way beyond her level Uh, and I like that that opening scene with the the um, what I'm presuming are Mexican immigrants from South American immigrants are, you know, I think a lot of times movies will do things just on a metaphorical level. But that's like a really nice scene of Tommy Lee Jones being like, oh, yeah, cool. You came here to try to get a job. Like, cool. No problem. Like, that's really not a big deal. And we got to stop this one guy because he's an alien. And even then, they're not immediately trying to kill that guy. They're mostly just trying to be like, hey, you violated your parole or whatever. And when they do kill him, it's because... He was going to kill someone else first. Like, I like that it, it's not just on a metaphorical level. Like, you get a little bit of, of how that would play out in the real world. And mm-hmm. sort of you get Tommy Lee Jones, like, one-upping the sort of what is implicitly, like, racist state troopers or whatever who were there before. Yeah. Yeah. It's just nice little touches that add just enough enough depth to this so that it doesn't just feel like hollow summer fun. Equally, I really like Leon uh, Linda Fiorentino's performance mm-hmm. in this movie and I've ne- um I mean I, so I probably di- I I discovered this movie before I discovered Dogma but I really love her in that as well um <laughs> we're g- we're going to have a big disagreement in a second <laughs> <laughs> um I remember being like viscerally annoyed when Men in Black 2 
turned up in cinemas because I went to see Men in Black 2 um, for my birthday party. When, I must have been. I'm tried. when did that movie come out? Uh, I'm just going to look. That uh, was 2002. Okay, so 2002. So I think I went to see Men in Black 2. For, so that would have been my 13th birthday. The year after, I think we went to see American Wedding, which was a... <laughs> Jesus. That was the that was the arc that Teenage Joey was on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I remember being really annoyed that... Like, I, I, I was like, well, Agent J made his decision... Agent K made his decision. And also, I was looking forward to the sequel where Leander, Linda Fiorentino was a... Uh, was a Men in Black agent. And I I kind of think that you you can kind of... You can kind of accept some of the treatment of the character... Of that character in this movie. If her arc is... Actually, from the very start, she's clearly been more attuned to this stuff than anyone around her. And her arc is, yes, she's eventually going to be a Men in Black agent. If you actually get to watch that... Uh, and Men in Black 2, I remember just thinking, like, are you kidding me? Like, I like I like these characters, but where is she? And why is it just, like, a kind of, like, tossed-off explanation that, oh, yeah, no, she's not there, don't worry about it. I mean, this this is why I, like, I can I agree with you on that point, because I remember going to see Men in Black 2 and being like, where's, where's Linda Fiorentino's character? Because that was a cool thing, and I think she was in the cartoon. I vaguely remember her being in the cartoon. Okay. Um, However, revisiting it, especially with, uh, you know, Dogma being much more familiar to me now, I remember I, I was watching this performance and going like, actually, it's like she doesn't want to be there. Like, it's not as much as Dogma when she's basically sleepwalking through the movie. But I, I don't know, like her performance no, in really, this film seemed... I really seemed, disagree. Sorry? I really disagree. Well, you think she was having a good time? Yeah, I think I think that her, I think her scenes are fun, and I think she. I don't know. Maybe maybe I don't find her believable in what she's doing. I'm not sure. Like just something about it seemed unnatural, and like I just didn't believe anything she was doing. Caroline, break the tie. <laughs> I <laughs> well, I feel like I'm just going to split the difference. I feel like <laughs> this is a very particular type of female character we got in the '90s, where it's sort of like mm. disaffected, cynical, slightly removed, and it's sort of like up to the viewer of like, is that a choice being made by the actor, or is that bad acting? And I tend to lean towards more to like that's an active choice, but I see where you're coming from a little bit. I think um, she just isn't like developed at all either like as a character yeah. it's like it's kind of there's not a lot there it's easy to project whatever you want onto <laughs> her because she's a bit of a blank slate i mean i remember being surprised that she doesn't like aside from that one very quick scene she doesn't turn up for like 45 minutes or something and i was like wow i remember her being a much bigger part of this movie and she's i had that reaction to every single aspect of this movie and i couldn't remember if that was just because i had watched this first one so much i think a lot of these characters do come back in the second one which i don't remember as well but i'm wondering if that's coloring my Mm. opinions but in my mind it was like oh the tony shalhoub character who runs the pawn shop like he's a major character throughout and that pug is the main thing throughout and each of those have like one scene (laughs) and i was like whoa these are all and I think yeah. they all came back in this. I, again, I, I can't tell so. how much I'm the being pug, influenced the pug by that. Definitely did because the marketing leaned hard into. Yeah. It. I mean, I'm looking at the Men in Black Blu-ray in front of me, and the pug is like the little head on the side cover. 
So it's not <laughs> it's not Will Smith yeah. or Tommy Lee Jones. It's the pug. It's the pug. Um, and the same with the little aliens that pour the coffee or whatever. All of those things I remember being so big. And in this movie, they're not overused at all. They, like, come and go. And in a way, that's mostly good, I think. They're just sort of there for texture. Nothing outstays its welcome in this movie. Yeah. And if anything, and if anything, I think that this, maybe with Dr. Laurel, the character, like, this is where it does become a problem. Like, it's efficient, maybe to a fault. And that it would have been nice for some of these things to breathe. And I think they hit okay beats with her. I like this idea that she regularly figures these things out so they regularly have to keep neuralizing her because she's so smart yeah. yeah again that sort of works with the parallel to the will smith character who just sort of has this natural ability to figure things out or you know problem solve his way through things and you sort of get the sense why he finds her appealing as a partner in the same way that Kay does with him it's like a nice little like the cycle continues um they try to like undermine the idea of her being a damsel in distress mostly she's just a damsel in distress but we get the scene where she like weirdly jumps into a tree out of out of edgar's arms and <laughs> yeah. like conveniently lands and, in this I mean, tree and, she the killing and she's yeah 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 she does she does get that moment at the end as well so i think you know give the movie some props for that yeah for sure i mean it feels very like first thought like strong female you know quote-unquote strong female <laughs> character yeah. but it's fine again it's like for a movie that's this quick and breezy i'm not necessarily needing more than that um, but I, yeah, I don't know. She's not the standout for me, certainly. But yes. I don't necessarily mind her. I just wanted her in the sequel. That's the thing that bothered yeah. me the most. Um, speaking of that, and speaking of all the neuralizing, first of all, the neuralizer is a genius design. The The sunglasses, it's like that kind of, it's the idea that's kind of like, it's instantly iconic. I was going to say, of, that's like, that's the thing from pop, like that this gave to pop culture, right? Is the neuralizer. Mm-hmm. It's it that that image of Tommy Lee Jones holding up the neuralizer yeah. is, I think, the most I, the iconic image from Men in Black. Having said that, that is one of those things, and it's one of those things that that whenever I see that kind of device deployed in pop culture, it it bothers me. And I'm not saying, but it bothers me in like a bad way. But you know, it's like one of those things that it worms into my brain and kind of upsets me for days afterwards. In a in in a good way, I think. So, as in, you're my, upset about the concept of it happening to someone. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, I am. I am very upset anytime I experience a piece of pop culture where, for some reason, not usually not through death. In fact, always not through death. But it, when a couple who are so clearly destined to be together and who so clearly love each other are kept apart. Um, it's probably why Captain America is so effective for me in that ending yeah. because I I buy that relationship and it's not just that they're no lo- they can no longer be together it's that they both have to live the rest of their life knowing that they can't be together and knowing that that person is out there um, and another one for me is the removal of memories and sometimes it depending on the way that movies treat it sometimes it bothers me in a oh, fuck that movie or fuck that character kind of way. And I think we've spoken about this before. The Moira McTaggart stuff at the end of X-Men First Class is the element of that movie that really bothers me. In this, it it doesn't bother me, but it kind of like, it just, 
it kind of like plucks one of my brain guitar strings, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so yeah. like when Will Smith is going after, when Jay is following Kay and saying, have you ever used that thing on me? And he's like, nope. Yeah. He's like, you sure you've never used that thing on me? You ever neuralized me? And he's like, nope, nope. And I'm like, you bloody did though. <laughs> and the the idea, I like, what are we if not our memories? I think that's, I think that's the what it comes back to me. What, what are we if not the sum of our experiences? And if you take away the memory of those experiences... Um, which obviously sounds, is a real, thing. Sounds it's a real thing that can happen and is pretty harrowing. It but sounds yeah, to it, me like you need to go and watch Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind because that Jesus answers Christ. that question. And the answer is you still get together anyway. Unless you're kept apart through otherworldly means, James. <laughs> but in Com- the ending of this combine film, like, those two, Combine those two plot elements together, James, and I'm going to be a wreck. <laughs> genuinely, the end of this film where it shows you the tabloid and it's like man awakens from 35-year coma and returns to the girl he left or something. You know, it's big st- smiles. Yeah. Everyone happy. Ah. It's like Black Mirror, but good. Can it's, we it's can we talk about that? That's my big question about this movie because I remember when I initially watched this, like feeling that the whole the whole thing about about Kay wanting to retire and giving up his memories at the end, like I remember finding that really, really moving and like a lovely depth to it. And then on this rewatch, I was like, does this movie earn that? It feels like a little bit sudden. And again, I can't tell if that's just because I built it up so much in my mind that I'm, you know, not getting like a clear impression. But there was almost a sense like I kind of understand. I don't agree with it. But I understand why the sequel felt they needed to bring Tommy Lee Jones back because it does Mm. feel like there's more stories to tell with these two guys. It feels weird that you would train your replacement, go on one mission with him and then immediately retire. You know? I think the the reason it works in the moment is the delivery of that, uh, the delivery of the, the of the dialogue from yeah. from Tommy yeah. Jones. The 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 moment where he says, "I was never training a partner; I was training a replacement." And you, I, I, even on rewatch, I'm completely wrong footed by it, but I also completely buy it at the same time. I'm like, yes, I think on on character level from k i buy that that is what has been happening having yeah, said I that i mean on on a practical level <laughs> thinking like you know one mission and he's he's out like yeah i can imagine but when you look at it that deeply you go well yeah maybe that should have been like a couple of years <laughs> but i think it is the yeah, performance when, when that sells it, it the movie doesn't sell it mm-hmm yeah, and I wasn't even necessi- necessarily saying it didn't. Like, I do kind of agree with you. It was just a que- that was the main question I had while watching this. Like, was this efficient to the point of? And on some level, it's admirable that we get the one scene of him sort of watching his lost love, and that again in my mind, like that was such a big part of the movie, and it's really just one <laughs> minute long that scene. That's a that's a pretty clunky scene, I think. Yeah. Where he's just he's he zooms in eight times on yeah. you, and, and she like watch, looks up. Yeah, looks up longingly, like towards the middle distance, and he looks at her and smiles. And Jay just happens to be watching over her shoulder and goes, "Oh, now I understand everything about your character. Yeah. Let me <laughs> let me explain." Um, but yeah, also another thing I learned from these special features on this movie uh, that ending was kind of it was one of numerous endings that they were thinking of going with, hmm. and. At, at one part, it, uh, at one point, it was just Kay was training a partner, and that this was just the one that they landed on as thinking was probably the most effective ending. So it wasn't that the whole movie was kind of building towards it, which is why I kind of tend to say the movie doesn't 
necessarily build you up to that moment, but I think Tommy Lee Jones sells mm. the moment nonetheless. He's so good. And he? even Will Smith too, when he's like he's like, Oh I, whatever, I'll remember this and he's like, No, you won't. Like even Will Smith in that moment yeah. has some nice like depth to him. Just the immediate act the the immediate acceptance of Yeah. Do you know what? This um I completely believe what this guy's saying to me right now and the most respectful thing I can do is just to kind of like yeah, respect his wishes and neuralize him and move on. <laughs> Even though he's the guy that I'm wanting to learn from and I've gained all this respect you for. You know, it's funny. In You know, I talked about how they made a follow-up comic. Like One of the few th- things Marvel did with Men in Black was publish a follow-up to the movie. In that, one of the first things they do is uh, go and use the neuralizer on Tommy Lee Jones and the instruction is remember everything. <laughs> in the movie, I think they take him to a denuralizing chamber or something. Uh, but like, I, it's funny that in the in the comic they did exactly the same thing. They were like instantly like out of continuity, obviously. Back. But they were just like, well, let's let's bring him back. I yeah. kind of, in in a way, I wish I'd rewatched Men in Black two before this podcast <laughs> uh, to have any kind of memory of it. But I think it's probably more fitting that all I can tell you about it is that I I. I have no res- no residual fondness or memory of it whatsoever. Oh my god, maybe you, you got neuralized, Joe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> your worst fears are coming true. Someone someone wiped that movie from your brain. Barry Sonnenfeld was uh. like, forget Men in Black 2. <laughs> I remember I Tommy remember Lee Jones. Sequel. Oh yeah, you go, and then I want to say too. Okay. We'll, let's, we'll do, piece it together. The thing that I do remember from the sequel is the theme song, <laughs> which, just going to throw out there, you guys, is the best no. Will Smith Whoa. song no. from a movie. It's the best one. No. It's the best one. No. Nod your head. The black suits no. are coming. <laughs> uh, James, I'm I, sorry. I can't remember anything about the movie, but I can remember that there's this chick, right? Selena. <laughs> I remember like all the lyrics from that song. <laughs> <sighs> uh, finish whatever you start, son. The best looking qu- crime fighter since myself. Wow. Part one. <laughs> it's not wow. even... It's not even T-U-R-T Alley Power, is it? Oh, no, honestly, I can't. I owned that single. Like, I I, I went into Asda and I paid one ninety nine for that single. <laughs> it, I think you it had Miami man. on the B-side. Fleeced. That is, that is my long way of saying that is a, an opinion that I hold that I know is unpopular and that no one will agree with. <laughs> but, so let's talk about how when Will Smith was doing the theme songs to his movies, they were glorious times. I, the 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 anger that I had when Men in Black 3 came out and I was like, well, there's one reason to look forward to this movie at least. And then they announced that Pitbull was doing the music. Pitbull. Well, if, again, to plug Will Smith's YouTube channel, he has been releasing some new music and footage of him in the studio on there. So another yeah. thing to check out. That's I know about that because Amon has been posting links to that, and he he's done the like the theme tune to the World Cup. Yeah, I think. (laughs) Yeah, here's what I remember about Men in Black too. Tommy Lee Jones works in a post office. Yes, maybe there are aliens there, and Rosario Dawson is secretly an alien. Spoiler alert! And there's a part where Will Smith, yeah, where she's like an alien princess, but she doesn't know it, and Will Smith Mm -hmm. is like, you know. He's like, you know Sorry, how whatever, I'm not, I'm not whenever that. it... I just don't remember Rosario Dawson being in Oh, it. yeah, no, she's the main... She w- And I'm sure she was good, because she's always good. But yeah, there's a yeah, part agreed. There's a part where he's like... It, they're trying to prove she's an alien, and he's like, when it rains, or it, when you... You're crying, and it's raining. And she's like, yeah, lots of people 
cry when it rains. And he's like, yeah, but when it, when you cry, it, <laughs> somehow when she cries, it makes rain happen. And so his proof is like, but in your case, you're making the rain happen with your tears. And I think about that line, like every time it rains, <laughs> I can't tell you anything else about men in black too, but that idea of her making it rain with her tears, like stuck in my brain. And Guys, that's my main takeaway. The Men in Black franchise has done some weird stuff to us individually. <laughs> yeah, it really has. Maybe when they do the little neuralizer in the movie, it just like inceptions weird stuff into our brain. <laughs> okay, counterpoint. Black suit, the black shades, the black shoes, black tie with the black attitude. Yeah? No. Yeah? No. Okay. <laughs> okay, uh, let's let's draw it to a close there. James, what comic are you recommending based on Men in I mean, Black? The, is it Tank Girl? You know, I was trying to think, is there any, is there anything, you know, are there any other black and white indie comics I could recommend? But not really. I mean, I think the things to go and seek out out of this movie are just the Men in Black comics. Like, if you can find them, and I think it will be quite difficult. Um, James, you know mean, sometimes that you... Sorry? You know, sometimes you do the recommendation on the podcast and I go like, oh, do you know what? Yeah, at some point I actually will... I, I, I kind of would really like to read that. I'll look up that on Marvel Unlimited or I'll try and hunt that down at some point. Mm-hmm. There's no fucking way I'm ever reading these Men in Black comics. <laughs> no, I mean... No, like, no I, way on earth. I love this stuff because, like, I'm really invested in the, like, you know, the the comic book history of our pop cultural icons. And so I read them because I'm that kind of nerd. But there's no real value in them beyond that. James, um, we we love you for being that kind of <laughs> if I If I had to recommend one, I would say go and read Men in Black Retribution because my, like, my big wheelhouse is, uh, like, sequels to comic sequels that are out of continuity and ignored by, like, future canonical stuff. That's why I love the X-Men comics that are sequels to the movie that contradict later movies. And so Men in Black Re- Retribution is a, the out, in, out of continuity sequel to the first movie. Maybe it's the sequel that we that we needed all along. Maybe. That's, pro- that's the one published by Marvel, so it's probably the easiest to find. Okay. Um, I think we should move on now, but I just want to leave, us, leave the Men in Black conversation behind by saying one thing that I forgot to say. Love those egg chairs. Love (laughs) the egg chairs. I want an egg chair in my living room. Okay, um, so our final section is the pitch. Um, Caroline, we don't do the pitch on the main episode anymore. I know things have changed since you were last here, so I don't know if you if you want you can you can prepare a pitch and and send it in this week. But uh, I I'll be I'll be honest, I've kind of set it up in all, in such a way that Seb can just slide back in and do one on the mini side okay. if he wants to. I just want you guys to pitch another Marvel comic. In fact, no, screw it. I want you to pitch another comic that I've never heard of to become a movie. I'm really so regretting Jay- talking about Cadillacs and dinosaurs earlier now. Yeah, <laughs> neuralize it real quick, and then uh, you can still pitch it. Yeah, I was going to say I'll, I'll have I'll have forgotten that by next week anyway. Okay, um, but that's it for this week's podcast. Caroline, thanks so much for coming back and joining us. Uh, thanks for having me on. I always I always in, uh, enjoy joining you guys. Should we just tell everyone what you're going to come back and do when when you are next on the podcast? Yeah, tease them. Yeah, when Caroline comes back, we're going to talk Josie and the Pussycats, which is <laughs> another great Rosario Dawson performance 
it might be a perfect movie. I, I'm not joking. It might be a perfect movie. I watched it for the first time about three or four years ago and fell head over heels. I've never seen it, but after getting so deep into Riverdale, I'm really looking forward to watching it one day. I could sing you quite literally every word from the soundtrack <laughs> because that was the soundtrack of my youth. Do you know all of the Dijon stuff as well? Yeah. Those were also on the soundtrack. <laughs> you, I mean, backdoor lover. It can't be any worse than Joe singing "God Horrible" to us. So, <laughs> you you haven't heard the lyrics, James. <laughs> As Caroline just explained, their song is named "Backdoor Lover." It's a lot of a. Uh, there's a lot of winking lot of innuendo going on in yes. Josie and the Pussycats. <laughs> Um, yeah, so Josie and the Pussycats and an X Men movie. That's that's when Caroline will. Be oh, this is really. This is like. Between that and Men in Black, this is just, this is my Ready Player One, like all of my nostalgia just <laughs> swirling around me and I'm being rewarded for it. And I, I now understand the appeal of that, that franchise. Oh, amazing. <laughs> uh, before you go, Caroline, is there anything you want to plug? You, you're, um, you're writing an excellent column right now on rom-coms, I believe. Uh, thank you. Yes, I am. Um, for the AV Club, I'm writing a, a twice, twice monthly column called when romance met com uh, meets comedy when romance when romance met comedy that's what I it's called when comedy met romance who knows what it's called um <laughs> but i w- <laughs> i will say for those that are interested i recently did a retrospective of the will smith movie hitch where he's a professional oh, pickup artist so if you want my thoughts on another another will smith uh genre hopping classic that's there otherwise you can just find me on twitter i'm at caroline Cedar. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, thanks again for coming, Caroline, and it's, what what a fun time we've had talking about Men in Black. It's been a blast. Please don't neuralize me so that I forget it all. <laughs> we could always listen back, I guess. That's true. <laughs> Until the internet goes down. <laughs> okay, um, if you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, um, Overcast. Sure, that's the one I'm going to mention this week. Or your podcast app of choice. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. If you listened to last week's Minnesota, you'll notice for spoiler reasons, we cut out a section and just dropped it on Spotify, uh, on Spotify, on uh, Patreon. So there's that, there's bonus episodes. Um, James, you and Seb did a bonus episode last yep, week. reviewing Spider-Man 800. Yeah, so that's that's up on Patreon. So there is there is a reason to support us on there. There is act- actual additional content. Um, but equally, kids love content, you, yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> if if you don't love content, or if you are content with your content, just keep listening to us on here, and it's fine. Uh, you can find more episodes of the show at cinematicuniverse.com. Uh, you can get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter at cine underscore verse, or send us an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. I need a name. Batboy, Nightwing, I don't know, what's a good sidekick name? How about Dick Grayson, college student? Screw you. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Batman Forever. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 